Hey, Tim. What's up, Tim? We just watched the movie Them, about ants that become radioactive after being exposed to a nuclear test and grow into gigantic monsters that will eat all humans and plant life on Earth. I think it's safe to say at this point, these atomic ants have become weapons of grass destruction. Tim, I think you're being super critical. That's, that's fair. Welcome to another episode of the Supercritical Podcast, where we delve into the fun and oftentimes nonsensical way pop culture portrays nuclear weapons. My name is Tim Westmeyer, someone who studies nuclear weapons and works on nuclear security for a living, and is often irritated about what he sees on film. I am not joined today by my usual podcast co-host, Gabe, because he is busy wandering around the desert in a catatonic state because I told him that really bad pun about atomic ants. But for the record, I thought calling them weapons of grass destruction was pretty funny. Uh, fortunately, I am joined over Skype today by returning guest and podcast listener favorite, Tim Collins, PhD candidate studying nuclear history of Britain at King's College London. Tim, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much for having me. And yeah, it's really good to be back talking about this, uh, not least because it's uh, uh, one 90-minute film rather than making mm-hmm. you watch uh, two seasons <laughs> <laughs> of uh, nuclear-related nonsense. Yeah, people will probably remember Tim from our episodes on The Man in the High Castle, as well as uh, our very popular episode on the movie Threads, also known to the people who listen as the really long episodes. Yeah, um, sorry. <laughs> I'm Irish. We we talk a lot. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's all right. This is what happens. This is, these are the kind of conversations we would have over a beer, so we might as well record it, right? Exactly. So we're here today to talk about the 1954, this might be the earliest film I think we've done on the podcast yet, uh, called Them. And just want to admit, for clarification, that's Them with an exclamation mark. So if, if it sounds like we're yelling, we're not. We're just saying the movie title. <laughs> it's one of the first giant bug monster movies that started a whole bunch of radioactive monster films in the 50s and the 60s when people really didn't know what radiation could do to you or to the environment. So they just assumed that giant monsters would be a real byproduct of nukes or at least make for an entertaining movie plot. Uh, Tim, I, I really appreciated the list you put together of uh, films that were inspired by them. Uh, why don't you run through this a little bit to provide the context of why we picked this one as opposed to any of the other ones on the list? Yeah, so I think this is really interesting like the subgenre of squarely B-movie science fiction films produced in the particularly the mid-1950s. And they all revolve around well, general themes of uh, radiation, nuclear testing, and societal nuclear anxiety. And the way that these films express that is generally through the idea of giant radioactive creatures. Them is probably one of the most either famous or infamous, depending on your, your point of view. <laughs> it's about obviously giant, you know, eight, ten, twelve foot ants. The scale keeps changing in the film. Um, <laughs> but it's um, by no means uh, the only one. So yes, yeah, so as you said, Them came out in 1954, but it was actually preceded the year before by a film. So all of these films have ridiculous titles. The first one in 1953 was called The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. Mm-hmm. 
so this was a much smaller budget. Uh, it was re- released by Warner Brothers, which is the same studio that make, made them. And apparently it did surprisingly well. Uh, naturally, a film makes money. Perhaps that's the reason so many imitators started coming out. Mm-hmm. So every movie, so, every movie now is either The Matrix or it looks like Jason <laughs> Bourne. Uh, exactly. what, what works and sells. Exactly. So we're running through a couple of these. So yeah, so them comes out in 1954. Uh, the same year, another film came out called Monster from the Ocean Floor. <laughs> so the description of that one is um, a woman on holiday in Mexico spots a giant one-eyed amoeba rising from the ocean. Uh, but when she tries to tell the authorities, no one believes her. She finally teams up with a marine biologist in an attempt to destroy it. Hmm. Uh, 1955, another film, It Came From Beneath the Sea. A giant radioactive octopus rises from the Philippine Trench to terrorize the North American Pacific coast. What What is that called when people have a fear of something in the ocean? Is it lassophobia or perfect i don't know what it's called but it's perfectly reasonable the, I, I the idea of swimming in open water with something beneath you and not knowing what terrifies me and that's before they become radioactive <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly yeah in the 1957 you had the amazing colossal man mm-hmm. uh, a military officer survives a nuclear blast only to begin to uncontrollably grow into an increasingly unstable giant and 1959, you had the giant behemoth, where marine atomic tests caused changes in the ocean's ecosystem, resulting in dangerous blobs of radiation and the resurrection of a dormant dinosaur that threatens London. Well, that sounds pretty familiar to the, the one that we kind of are leading up to here, uh, the big one that still makes movies today, uh, Godzilla. Exactly. Uh, them is probably the second most famous uh, of these kind of monster films and and contemporaneous with it was the original uh, Japanese Godzilla which I think we'll probably talk to a bit later especially in comparison and similarities mm-hmm. and differences to, to them but um, yeah, you had a, a Godzilla came out, Mothra in 1961, um, Rudin in 1956 but so there's a, there's a, a uniquely Japanese sub sub genre obviously mm-hmm. but um, you can tell from just the brief descriptions of those films, they are almost carbon copies of each other in terms of radiation causes X creature to terrorize Y. Mm-hmm. They're all very close to each other. I think they differ quite significantly in, in quality of filmmaking and effects. I did try to watch as many of these as I could. Some of them are not easy to find these days yeah. unless you want to like scour eBay and have the obscure DVD. But again, you, uh, they sit, I think this also sit alongside plenty of other specifically science fiction B-movies of the period. So while these films are exploring concerns about radiation and the early onset of the Cold War through this giant ant premise, at the same time you have kind of thematic cousins where it's still solidly sci-fi films, but they're approaching from a different way. So uh, probably the most famous is The uh, the Day the Earth Stood Still from mm-hmm. 1951. Um, it's a really good movie. Idea. It's a really good movie. I always exactly. I mean, enjoy that one quite a lot. So, I mean, it's, these films obviously vary significantly in quality. And that's um, probably the best ones are the ones that keep getting remade. <laughs> so, like The Day the Earth Stood Still. Um, that's another one where you have a science fiction premise as like an analogy for mankind's genius in creating these massive weapons and unleashing these forces of nature, but also acting at the limits of our own wisdom and capability to control them. Mm-hmm. And so they get lots of other, you know, just general, uh, particularly American Cold War paranoia. So that's probably reflected in films like uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers from 1956. Your neighbor's a, a communist. You might just not know. I mean, exactly. I mean, that was a bit McCarthyist and, <laughs> and probably a little less knowingly. Well, it's certainly not subtle or intelligent. But mm-hmm. again, it's this idea of science fiction being used uh, to hold up a prism to society. And although the premise might be silly or outrageous, there's something interesting underneath it. Um, 
that you know, it, it definitely it's it's an interesting snapshot of what was society concerned about at the time and how is that being reflected back through this very popular medium mm-hmm. I, I, I just a final honorable mention as well is uh <laughs> again probably the most infamous um is uh attack of the 50 foot woman from mm-hmm. 1958 which um i've got this, so i did i did find this one i did started watching it man it's so bad it's <laughs> such a bad movie it's not just the filmmaking it's so deeply terribly misogynist mm-hmm. it was really hard to watch and i ended up pretty much skipping for a film called attack of the 50 foot woman there's only like 10 minutes of attack of a 50 foot woman and it's all at the very end of the movie yeah. and that's on youtube so i would direct people if you're in any way interested go watch that scene and you'll also pretty much get the tone and sexism of the movie from that i think that's interesting not only because it's kind of an infamous film but that film doesn't directly address nuclear weapon fears, but the same way the reason the woman becomes 50 feet tall is she's somehow exposed to ra- uh, radiation. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting that so that's 1958 by then audiences and the film really doesn't make any attempt to explain how she has mutated and become so big. But I think it, it highlights it's tapping into a vernacular that has already been very well established by all these other films of, oh, radiation is this terrifying and kind of unknown, almost mystical force mm-hmm. Oh, maybe it just makes things giant. Whatever. <laughs> Don't think about it too too deeply. But by then, it, that, that idea has probably so much currency that the film doesn't feel like it needs to explain it very much. And I think that's because of films like Them mm-hmm. and Godzilla having this quite wide reach. One of the things I think we'll talk about as we as we go through this, so I really appreciate the, the framework that you created here, uh, which is a good foundation because, you know, there are definitely some of these movies where radiation is simply just a plot device. It's simply just a MacGuffin. It's the thing to make the other thing big. We could squish these bugs, but now they can squish us in this because of unknown radiation stuff. Mm. But then you got some films within this that talk about the the monsters are not the end in, in of the film itself. They are a, a means to uh, reflect on dangers of nuclear weapons, dangers of the mm. Cold War. And, and it's a way to tell people, uh, like all good sci-fi, uh, it's a way to tell people a story about something that's deeper, but using things that are a little bit more comfortable, a little bit more familiar, uh, even giant monsters as they're not really familiar, but it's something that's approachable for someone to be able to, uh, mm. a vehicle to get to a very complex subject, because not every movie can be threads and just show you no, the brutality. <laughs> of, fortunately, fortunately, not every movie is like that, but that's one thing that, that Godzilla, the original Godzilla did so well, um, that maybe the other ones don't really care about yeah different crew you know different filmmakers come in they perhaps don't share the same priorities and this language has already been established as you say it's, mm-hmm. it's funny how these sometimes these franchises lose their way or just they just become straight up monster action films and they forget the philosophical or metaphorical aspect and then you know you get a reboot and it comes back to that or it doesn't it's yeah, it's interesting how these same stories can sometimes get retold in very mm-hmm. different I would love to see a remake of them, see what it would be about, yeah. about now. I was going to um... ask at the very end, like, why has this one not been remade? Um, <laughs> yes. But but speaking of the particular qualities that a filmmaker and their crew bring, uh, this particular movie, Them, uh, was directed by Gordon Douglas, uh, who had a long career in B-movies and low-budget films. Uh, he also directed uh, an interesting 1957 movie called Bombers B-52, which was uh, about strategic air command setting up uh, a new, a couple of new planes, and it's more of a thriller. I don't remember this film being discussed as uh, one of the propaganda films of Strategic Air Command. There were a number of those mm. that were made, uh, literally with like uh, Curtis LeMay, the the commander of Strategic Air Command, like di- 
kind of being the actual director. Um, mm. uh, but mm. it does tell an interesting story about that particular piece of nuclear history. Uh, and also kind of interesting, he also was in many of the Little Rascals uh, <laughs> films and, and TV stuff. I think he was a little bit too old to be a literal Little Rascal, but he was one of the side characters. So quite a life this person has led. A number of really great actors, stellar cast, really, uh, in, in the movie Them, which is super surprising. Uh, James Whitmore, who a lot of people already remember from the movie Shawshank Redemption. He's Brooks, uh, Brooks Hatlin. He's the guy who has uh, who runs the library. He's got the little crow that he feeds worms to. Yeah, this aside, aside seen obviously this film before, and I've seen Shawshank Redemption many times, but I've only I had I didn't connect the two until I I, I looked it up in preparation for this, and I couldn't really believe it was it. Oh, he's got the saddest story in Shawshank Redemption. Yep. Uh, <laughs> at the end of the movie, them he should have wrote uh, Brooks was here next to the giant ants or something. Uh, uh, he was also in a movie called Give Him Hell, Harry where he plays a uh, known atomic bomb user uh Harry S Truman. I don't I don't think it's about that. I think it's about his like re-election campaign or some other stuff, but and it's like a one-man play type deal. Um but anyways, I thought another interesting that's what I look for when I look at these things. Another actor from this movie, James Arnis, uh, who was famous for gun, from Gunsmoke, but also was in the original The Thing. So not James Carpenter's The Thing, which is a, a one of the mm. best sci-fi movies of all time, but the original The Thing from Another World. Uh, and then a few other famous people like uh, Edmund Gwen, who played Santa Claus in uh, Miracle on 34th Street, and wait for it later, a cameo by Leonard Nimoy. Which, so I'm a massive Star Trek fan, and I don't believe I have seen this film several times. I never realized that was him. Mm-hmm. I, I, other than other than the TV show Fringe, I also don't think I've ever seen Leonard Nimoy in anything else, mm-hmm. um, at least not acting. Uh, so uh, yeah, well, you 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 tweeted me, and I immediately had to go and find the clip clip again. Like, like yeah, it's it's a very young, uh, very handsome Spock. <laughs> I only looked for it because um, I read the Wikipedia page, and it said he was there, so I kept an eye out for it. This movie was very very popular for a 1950s film. Uh, it was nominated for an Oscar for its special effects. It won a Golden Reel Award for best sound editing. So the highest grossing film, or one of the highest grossing films, from Warner Brothers in 1954. And if you go on Rotten Tomatoes, uh, even though Rotten Tomatoes didn't exist, the internet didn't exist <laughs> back then, um, it was it scored now as 100%, which is not many. I mean, most Best Pictures uh, uh, winners for the yeah. Oscars don't get 100%. So, I mean, the social scientist in me think there's an element of self-selection there. Sure. And that if you're going to go out of your way to review a film from <laughs> you know uh, 70 years ago, it's probably because you enjoy it and you want to write a review. It'd be odd to go back and trash it, but yep. um, but you're right. It's, it's it, it is it is fondly remembered for lots of different reasons. Um, including the quality of the filmmaking, which definitely makes a good difference to some of these other films. Oh, for sure. At the same time. Execution matters quite a lot. Rotten Tomatoes summarizes it as the one of the best creature features of the early atomic age. Them features effectively menacing special effects and avoids the self-parody that would later taint later monster movies. I think that certainly is very true. And, uh, you know, where I go to for old movies, Turner Classic Movies, the website calls it a quintessential atomic age creeper, which I think is a good thing. Um, but yeah, so let, let, we've talked a lot about the what the film is and kind of the culture and, and the context, the round of which it came out. Let's get into the film itself. I don't know why I have to say this, but spoiler warning, if you haven't seen this movie from 1954 yet, uh, go on, check it out. It's not available widely on YouTube, so you're going to have to 
to rent it. I rented it from from Amazon Prime. I don't know how you watched it. Uh, I Tim. I had a DVD copy from back in my undergrad days when I first discovered nukes as a topic that you could actually research, mm-hmm. and I got quite into nuclear culture and uh, facilitated in part by a professor who was who was interested in the social aspects, and I was hoovering up all the films and books I could. I was reading it on the beach, and I kind of I, I spent like you know two months of just finding everything I could. And I love films from the fifties and sixties. That's okay. my period of history that I research as well. So yeah, this film was made for me. <laughs> Perfect. Well, let, how about you take the driver's seat here uh, on the right side of the car and and drive us through the, the right plot side. here. <laughs> yeah, well, so in terms of so the overall plot, I mean, you really can kind of summarize it from like kind of the IMDb type description of, mm-hmm. uh, or if the modern poster, which features a giant ant and some people, you kind of know what you're going to get. It is It is a straightforward plot. Uh, so the film is set uh, uh, roughly nine years, uh, so it's contemporaneous with its release in 1953, 1954. It's it's set uh, so nine years after the first atomic te- uh, atomic bomb test at the Trinity site in in New in New Mexico, the the southwest yes, of the United eight. States. Uh, so then the film opens with uh, the New Mexico State uh, Police. Uh, an aircraft and a ground vehicle are conducting a search, and you know it's, it's quite. I thought it was quite a good opening for a film in that you just start in the middle of a scene, and mm-hmm. it's not been feeding anything. Um, and these uh, two officers in a car, uh, so Sergeant Peterson, played by um, as, uh, James Mitmore, uh, Brooks, <laughs> as I can only I think might, of him. I might, just call him Bro- I might just call him Brooks throughout the entirety of this. <laughs> exactly. Um, yes, he and his colleague and a colleague are conducting a missing person search, and they find a, a very young girl uh, walking alone through the desert, carrying a doll, and she's like traumatized and uh, almost catatonic. And uh, that leads them to um, you know, search where she come from. And mm-hmm. you know, within the space of ten minutes, uh, we find out that we find that the trailer that she had been staying in with her family, and the trailer has been uh, ripped apart, like it was, you know, just made of cardboard. But rip, important thing: ripped apart from the inside, okay, like it inside. someone. <laughs> It wasn't like a car ran into it, like something got out. Yes, indeed. And and around the scene, so they they can't find any bodies. They they see um some some bloody clothes. And other than that, there's there's a gun, um, but it doesn't seem like there's been a robbery because the money is left in the trailer. And the then the other uh, quintessentially um mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, warning sign is that there is sugar. Um, sugar packets dotted all over the place. Interesting. So this doesn't seem like a run-of-the-mill uh, robbery or attack, certainly. It's clearly the bad guy from the Men in Black movie who runs around asking for sugar and sugar water. <laughs> I think it must be him. Well, he was an insect, so, I mean... It all works out, right? Giant cockroach <laughs> exactly. type thing. Uh, uh, if anyone's seen the movie Aliens, um, if you've seen Newt, that the, the little girl that hides from the aliens there, that kind of catatonic stare is really... I. I, obviously, it's not the same actress, 
And yeah. I didn't, I almost, I think I pulled open Google to search. I'm like, oh, obviously it clearly isn't. Those movies are 50, 60 years apart. Uh, but they almost look very identical. Like they typecasted Newt yeah. as the girl from them. Anyways, I just, I, I couldn't get past that point. <laughs> um, yeah, well, again, it's probably this, this idea of these early science fiction films establish a language that we then just become mm-hmm. familiar and just keep it's an easy thing for filmmakers to reference and you just kind of accept it. One of the things I read, and I don't know if this is true, but it was in a book about uh, when I was searching for things about the movie, them said that the contemporary reviews and the way this movie was marketed, the ant reveal, the fact that there's a giant ant was not known to the public Mm. and that people, when they entered this film thought they didn't know what to expect, at least for the first couple of weeks. The movie treats the rest of this at the beginning of the film like a regular police investigation. They think mm. there might be some kind of uh, crazed killer going around murdering people um, and who was also obsessed with sugar or something. And that mm. the contemporary reviews didn't reveal it like in the headlines or anything like that. Uh, I don't know if that's true because I we've seen the movie poster for this, but that may have been a movie poster created after the film. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I don't know if that's 100% true, but you can. it's fun to pretend that people didn't know yeah. that this was about giant ants. So, so I didn't point. know that either until you, you emailed me that. So I was, you watch the film thinking the audience knows something the characters don't. So it's kind of enjoyable seeing the character, mm-hmm. you know, you want to go, of course it's a giant ant. Yeah. Haven't you ever seen a giant hunt rip open a trailer? Um, <laughs> so you're kind of waiting for the characters to get there. And so they start spotting other warning signs, like they see a giant animal print that doesn't look like any animal print that they know. Mm-hmm. No, no cat ever lived, leave a print like that. Maybe something was set down there. Bag or can or something like that. Yeah, could be almost anything. And then they hear this um, high-pitched like, chirping noise or like a, a screech from the desert. Which ca- and... which causes the little girl to sit up and, and have scary eyes for a little exactly. while. She's just bolt upright in, in the car and it's the only reaction they get out of her. So, you know, in, in your mind, you're like, oh, it's the giant ants. I don't know. It's been the wind. It's pretty freakish in these parts. Yeah. Realize it's a giant ants. You're in danger. But uh, so, but I can Im- imagine how it would it would have played differently if you had no idea. If you could sit someone down cold, and yep. maybe you know, get a friend, sit them down who hasn't heard the podcast, and <laughs> you watch this and you know see what they think it is. Uh, maybe that'd be a way to replicate the, that initial surprise. Yeah, it's it's hard to pull yourself out of the current time that you're in. Uh, and one of the ways that I've seen that is, you know, when they call in the crime scene investigators to check out uh, fingerprint stuff and, and get the, the footprint all casted up so they can look at it. All these crime scene investigators, again, we're in the middle of a desert, a very hot desert. They're all wearing <laughs> suits and ties and like wool suits. And, uh, I mean, it's no, it's no worse than like CSI Miami, where they look like they've just come off the catwalk. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, they're not worried about contaminating the scene in any way. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess in the 50s, you had to sacrifice uh, comfort for style. But yeah, so we, we hear this kind of crazy sound. We then go to uh, another nearby, like, convenience store, which is, like, 
Gramps Johnson's general store. This store looks like the kind of place you would find in one of the Fallout video games. Exactly. So it's like a cabin. It's isolated. There's lootable items everywhere. <laughs> um, it's been ransacked. Uh, and in classic Fallout style, actually, yeah, there's a there's a body mm-hmm. uh, in the back in the back of the shop. And uh, yeah, Gramps is no more. <laughs> in classic Fallout style, they had. Uh, we talked about this when we did our episode on uh, the Fallout video game series for the podcast. There is a uh, in Fallout Three, mm. Fallout Three, there is a mission called Those with an exclamation mark. Yep. yep, which is about fire fire breathing giant ants. Uh, so they they step their game up a little bit there. Uh, so what? So they find the body. They also find a bunch of like uh, sugar, like sugar piles of bales of sugar that people have gotten into. One of the cops leaves to go file the report and get some help, but they leave one cop behind, and he hears the loud noises. You kind of see him go off camera fire a few shots he screams he hears the squeaky sound again and i guess he gets eaten so what do they think they think uh there's a cop killing uh crazy psychopath who's obsessed with sugar and Mm. clearly is like roided out or on a pcp or something and this all happens at the time. I think this is 14 minutes into the movie. I mean, to the film, it doesn't waste any time. It, it is it is quite uh, the beginning and the end of the film are both quite quickly paced. It's, it's quite effective. It does get you into. So it's funny because you've said that they didn't know about the ants. I can only now see it. Oh, if you view reviewing this as a mystery, mm-hmm. and you're right, this could just be like a serial killer type thing. But obviously, you watch this now, you're going. Of course, it's giant ants. Right. Um, but so within fourteen minutes, there's already been two two attacks, uh, two deaths. Uh, one of the one of the three characters we've been introduced to is already dead. We've already heard twice this um, horrific kind of screeching noise that's going to be played um, several times throughout the film, which is uh, spoiler being made by the ants as a means of communication, and it's genuinely actually I, think, I find quite creepy. Yeah, I uh, I saw here that the the sound is. Uh... A recorded chorus of bird-voiced tree frogs, and uh, <laughs> this particular whistling sound was used in a bunch of other giant monster movies like The Black Scorpion from 1957, and I don't know what this one's about, but Mohawk, probably pretty scary. Sounds scary it makes to me. It, it makes it sound less scary when you find out what it actually is, and then the Foley artist is their thing. Yep. It's like in Jurassic Park, I think the original sound of the raptors, the engineers took it from a video clip of turtles mating mm-hmm. and then they did magic tricks on the computer and then it makes this terrifying raptor noise but now you watch jurassic park you think oh yeah that's that's uh turtles copulating yeah. <laughs> it's suddenly less scary my favorite examples of that are the the t-rex from that movie is um i believe it's an alligator bellowing right. which if you watch if you go to youtube and search alligators bellowing it's frightening uh <laughs> it, but it's very similar to that and my other favorite is uh, well, Blasters from Star Wars is a metal high-tension wire hitting with a stick, and it, it sounds like a blaster, which you can recreate for yourself. Uh, and this is all created by Ben Ben Burt, sound foley artist. Uh, but the other one I really like is, I, I believe the TIE Fighter sound is tires on a wet pavement mixed with an elephant roar, and they combine those two things, which you probably wouldn't combine in, in real course, life. Of course, I mean, you know, who wouldn't think to combine this? Yeah. <laughs> terrifying sounds in the movie them uh and i think the other interesting thing with uh this police investigation is is that they they get the autopsy of gramps johnson there's a lot of formic i think it's pronounced formic acid 
uh, yep. inside of him, which is found in bee and ant stingers, also in the preservation of livestock feed, toilet bowl cleaners, and producing rubber. But anyways, it, it's weird that this whatever killer is going around is having a hyperthermic needle stabbing people with formic acid. Yeah, but and to be fair, I, I don't think it's it's. You know, the cops aren't unreasonable to <laughs> leap to the idea of, um, you know, it's giant mutated ants. Sure, they just, got like, they just stumbled across the weirdest career-making serial killer case mm-hmm. um, of all time. But they, they bring in the FBI because of a convenience little situation is that, the I guess, the owner of the RV was also an FBI agent. So they want to bring him in uh, or bring in someone from the FBI. And it happens to be FBI agent Bob Graham from the Alamogordo office. And uh, longtime podcast listeners have probably heard us talk about Alamogordo, New Mexico, uh, which was the site of the first nuclear test that Tim mentioned earlier, the, the Trinity test from July 16th, 1945. The, so the Alamogordo office of the FBI, of which I would love to see if it actually does exist. <laughs> it's not a big place, right? Like Alamogordo is not very big at all. So this guy just maybe it's like one room and he's this is the first time his phone has has actually rung and he's actually <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> But they need some the help. things you can't pick up as a British, you know, British person watching this, you know. I know some of the names, but you know, it's this kind of detail. Well they need some help, so they, they send out the footprint for, for help. Because I don't know why they would they would bring this footprint out. I guess maybe they think it could be at that point some kind of animal attack. But they, they send for help from Washington. Uh, the Department of Agriculture sends in Dr. Harold Medford and his daughter, Dr. Pat Medford, uh, who are, are very, very smart people that know a lot about, I guess, bugs, uh, mm. those kind of things. They're just called, I think they're just referred to as zoologists. It's very funny to think that in this movie in the 1950s, the best experts about zoologists are in government and not like <laughs> nowadays it would be someone like from the university or something. Uh, they wouldn't, it wouldn't be from a uh, government. Well, because that, the 1950s learning... pre, maybe I'm reading too much into this, uh, pre Watergate faith in government, maybe. Yeah, and, could be. Um, they have the best people. <laughs> well, they have the best people, but the, our heroes who are not really the best people, when when Doctor the second Doctor Bedford is come, appears as a as a woman, it's, it's this big surprise, a big reveal. Our character comes down, Doctor Bedford, and her, her skirt gets stuck on the airplane ladder, and all of our heroes like uh, blush and and like, God, can you believe this? And there's this interesting little exchange here where um the the cop uh, the cop says he's quite a doctor, huh? Yeah. She's the kind that takes care of sick people. I think I get a fever real quick. Um, these are our yeah, heroes. It's, it's clanging sexism. Um, this is probably something we return to as a recurrent theme throughout the film, and, a, and definitely I think the the most bum note in the whole film. But yeah, I mean, we literally are introduced to she, she's one of the main characters, one of like the heroes of the film, and yep. we see her first by uh, leering at her ankles. I mean, this was the fifties, so. It was the style at the time. And all the ground crew are kind of leering at her as she walks by. And the men's faces as they share a look of like, oh, my God, a lady doctor, dames. <laughs> I mean, it's very, it's uncomfortable to watch. And then they you know, explicitly do make that ha 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 joke about I'll get real sick real quick. And it's like, are we meant to find this funny? I think we're meant to be on their side. I yeah. mean, it's not like we're, we're setting this up as... There was some kind of adversity that she's going to overcome. Uh, yeah, weirdly, uh, yes, the, uh, she pl- she plays along. She um, gives as good as she gets, but it's it's all meant to be good humoured and funny, uh, rather than crushingly 
awkward and uncomfortable. Well, the 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 sexism overshadows the nepotism because how can a mm. father and daughter end up working in the same government branch at the same time? Maybe they're both experts, but there's something fishy there. I don't know what's going on there. Fishy zoology. There's something there. Uh, <laughs> so so Doctor Medford is back at the the police station and he's reading the coroner's report on old Gramps Johnson and he starts to uh, he looks at the formic acid and he starts to formulate a theory and uh, he asks uh, in what area was the atomic bomb exploded I mean the first one back in 1945 it was right here in the same general area White Sands mm-hmm. huh. 1945 that's nine years ago Yes, genetically, it's certainly possible. Now, look, we're growing up. There's no need to play footsie with us. As a matter of fact, we resent it. Now, if you people know what this thing is, Doctor, I suggest you tell us. We're assigned to this case, too, you know. Mr. Graham, we cannot tell you until we're absolutely certain of our theory. Um, one, the FBI agent points to the exact wrong place on the White Sands <laughs> map. He points to a, a spot that's uh, on the other side of Alamogordo, uh, where the nuclear test took place. But whatever, it's not... Hundreds of miles away, but it's not that important. Uh, but that's also now – it was later referred to as the the White Sands Proving Ground where the, the nuclear tests take place. It's gone back and forth with a couple different names. It was used for uh, World War II bombing tests and eventually was where the, the nuclear site uh, was for the, the, the first test. The doctor, though, is very mysterious. He keeps saying things like it could be genetically possible and all of this, but he doesn't say it's ants. It's clearly some kind of radioactive ant. He keeps that a mystery for just himself. Yeah, but he's clearly come with. He's he's already convinced somehow just by looking at a plaster cast of an unknown animal that of course it's an ant, and of course it's become giant due to uh, nuclear testing nearby. He he seems a very interesting scientist where he he's he's not. coming in with multiple hypotheses or having an open mind he's already convinced but he's not sharing his theory with with anyone so so yes the the two um the fbi agent and the police officer have to take have to then take him around all the different scenes of the attacks and they're getting understandably i think increasingly frustrated where no one will tell them what their working theory is but uh the this the harold the older scientist is getting more and more uh aggravated as he seems to find more evidence confirming his theory so then he wants to go talk to the little girl. That's his next thing. He wants to talk to the witness. He he goes to talk to the daughter. She's still in this catatonic state, mm. kind of staring. He has, uh, I don't know, I forget how this works. He has, uh, I guess he asked for his daughter to give him some formic acid. Then in a puts, vial, yes. Yeah, so she just carries that around, I guess. He puts it into a coffee cup and he puts it under the girl's nose. Mm. Because... Her nurse says that the only thing to bring her out of her state is to relive the trauma that put her there. Yeah, I don't think this is best psychology practice, yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's certainly very convenient in terms of the plot. Yep. Because, yes, as I said, they wave this um, formic acid uh, under her nose and she immediately perks up and she starts screaming. <laughs> Is it the desert now, gentlemen? It's getting pretty late, Doctor. Later than you think. Uh, and yeah, this is this game of, you know, how quickly will they mention the, the title of the movie in the yeah. movie? She just starts screaming, them, them. Cue the, cue the horn, uh, which I always like to play in my when they say the name of the movie. Exactly. 
But it seems like, it seemed to me like a really weird thing to to script. So them implies a familiarity. It's like, oh, I don't need to say what they are. It's yeah, you know, oh, we've seen these things so many times. It's just them. Truly, the natural thing to scream would be like ants, ants. Yeah. <laughs> and they'll be like, quickly call up, uh, call up the 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 father's um, sister. Yeah, the ant. The ant must be involved. Uh, the ant and yeah. the uncle are are attacking people. Yeah, I wonder if that was in the trailer. The little girl screaming them, them, them over and over again. Oh yeah, I mean trailers before like the mid nineties are always a bit hit and miss. Anyway, I mean mm-hmm. it's weird how cutting a trailer has become like a real art form now. Because you kind of watch, yeah, even a film from like the early nineties and it's clangingly simple and naive. So I'd love to see what the trailer for for nineteen fifty four B movies look like. Exactly. And actually I'll maybe post a few on Twitter. Some of those other films that I couldn't find to watch, but I did find the trailers and they are they are not good. <laughs> I thought modern trailers are bad about giving away the ending of the films. Uh the the trailers for lots of these B movies of the period just straight up show you like the monster and the mm-hmm. last few minutes and that kind of it's kind of crazy. Alright, so go check that out. Uh uh, people listening to the podcast, uh, Tim's Twitter handle is at War and Cake, which makes sense if you know me. I write about war, and I also do a lot of baking. <laughs> it'll, it'll <laughs> it is objectively silly. I do wonder if that's going to follow me around my professional career. But uh, you can't say you know I'm not consistent in my uh, <laughs> you, you, uh, in my branding. You'll you, you know you'll you'll get what you uh, what you expect. <laughs> Just be careful when you're doing all that baking. You don't leave sugar around because then. <laughs> then your then your two professions will also your, yeah your two <laughs> interests will come and combine to you in a different way. All right, so the scientist has talked to the little girl. He's seen the autopsy report. He thinks he's got a theory, but now he wants to go back to the scene of the crime. Uh, so they go out into the desert, and then what happens? Then they put the goggles on. They go check out the crime scene, and then them appear. But who is them? I don't know if anyone uh, if you ever watched the film. Um... From dusk till dawn. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm the fir- I watched that film once when I was way too young, but it was on really late at night. I didn't know anything about it. So uh, that film starts like a straightforward like western road movie. It's got Tarantino, and you know you're 45 minutes in, it's like all right, this, this is fine, but it's so much so standard criminal fare. And then all of a sudden, that film uh, Salma Hayek turns into a vampire and rips off Quentin Tarantino's head. Mm-hmm. And I remember watching that, having no idea what. The film was about going. What did I just see? That was my that, that was my film, same experience. Straightforward, like vampire monster movie. Uh, then does something similar. So the first twenty five minutes of this film are straightforward police procedural. And okay, there's a few weird things, um, but there's you know, and you've had this non diegetic sound of like the ant screaming, but you haven't seen the source of it. So mm-hmm. it's you know non-diegetic it's off screen scientists the police they go to the original crime scene what what's happening what's going on you hear the sound again and all of a sudden what's that coming over the hill it is a giant i, I they say it's 10 foot giant ant and this is i think uh, one interesting note is this isn't done like lots of films at the time like miniatures and stop motion animation mm-hmm. They filmed this with a full scale, I suppose you'd call it a puppet, because, I mean, as it moves, yeah. the legs move. But I was reading, apparently, the, so it wasn't like there's a person inside it. This this ant couldn't move on its own, but they do some camera trickery. Apparently, it's on a dolly, and the legs move independently. So It's an animatronic atomic ant. Right. <laughs> uh, terrifying. Um, you know, but you watch it, you're like, okay, it's a practical effect. But for the standards of the time, it's not the worst. Yeah. Um this is pretty giant, quite 
gross-looking ant appears over the hill and starts to uh, look like it's going to attack uh, Patricia, so the the female doctor. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, our heroes leap into action. Um, uh, they start shooting the ant, and uh, the uh, older doctor goes, uh, "No, no, shoot the antennae. That's how it sees." And get the antennae! Get the antennae! <laughs> Uh, I think at one point, uh, uh, Brooks, as I'm going to now just call him, uh, he suddenly magics up a machine gun that appears from nowhere. Like a, anyway, he, he, he goes back to the car and gets a Tommy gun, basically. Oh, that was, okay. Yeah. It, it, looked, it looked to me like in a video game, you know, he's, he's cycling through triangles. Yeah, yeah. He, he fired a pistol, then all of a sudden he has a machine gun. The FBI um, agent has a handgun <laughs> that he never had on him at all at any point beforehand. Uh, so that, does, that magic gun does appear a little bit. Movie logic. But anyway, so they managed to um, fend off the ant by shooting it in the antennae a lot, and the ant falls down dead. And that's like, you know, so 20, 25 minutes into the film, that's where you finally have the reveal of them as being these yep. giant, quite gross ants. One of the family for Missidae. An ant. An ant. I don't believe it. It's not possible. A fantastic mutation, probably caused by lingering radiation from the first atomic bomb. Notice its odor? Yeah. Formic acid? Well, then that's why that little girl reacted so violently. And the coroner's report said that Gramps was filled with the stuff. See that? Not a big fan of bugs anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, you ever see, like, pictures of bugs under microscopes and they are, you know, suddenly a, a small little housefly that you yep. wouldn't think twice about suddenly looks incredibly gross and horrific. Um, there's the same thing. Like, there's a general element of creepiness, despite all the – it's a bit – ropey 1950s effects but when you see this giant ant with its huge mm-hmm. antennae and everything I, I got a little bit weirded out I, I i did not enjoy it and i don't think it's just because i don't like bugs i didn't want to frighten you but i can see behind you on the skype video ah! there's a, <laughs> a caterpillar no no it's all good um don't, yeah, don't, yeah. Uh, basically any, any bug that's like larger than a centimeter and i i will i will suddenly vacate the room i don't know what it is <laughs> yep no time to lose. We must find the colony, the nest. You mean there's more of them? This was probably just a scout foraging for food. You heard the sound. The stridulation. It communicated with others in the colony. Communicate? You mean these things sent messages? Of course. All insects have means of communication with their own kind. Uh, so they're looking for them because uh, they're bigger than a, a, centi- a centimeter or, or whatever. They're, they get in a helicopter and they fly around. Uh, looking for uh, basically like an anthill or where the colony would be. Uh, so the doctor worries there might be hundreds, potentially thousands of these giant ants. So they go looking for the nests. They want to kill the ants before there's a national panic. Like that's one of the major underlining themes here is they don't want to uh, tell the the world that there are these ants. Otherwise people will, I guess pretty reasonably freak out. I'd probably freak out if I was told there's a bunch of uh, ants that could take over the world. But yeah, they find the ant hole. Uh, they, you'd see this funny scene of an ant coming out of the hole and it has a human rib cage, like an intact human yep. rib cage. It's been stripped clean of all flesh and organs, but somehow the rib cage is holding together as one like whole um entity it doesn't yeah it doesn't fall apart in any way as a rib cage actually would now i would understand that if there were thousands of little ants eating mm. a rib cage because then it, mm. the individual ants aren't like pulling apart the rib itself mm. but these are giant monster ants i don't know how they eat without 
tearing well, it apart. Very fine motor skills, apparently. They've picked the, the bones literally clean, but they've also somehow kept the, uh, yeah. the ribcage intact. And there, so you see skulls and that kind of thing. So just so there's no ambiguity about what happened to the um, the missing family and, the and so forth. They have been uh, yeah, picked clean by this giant nest of ants. So now, now they need to go into action. And uh, the U.S. Air Force, of course, their plan is to to bomb the nest. They want to just blow it to smithereens. Uh, no, no discussion at any point whether or not to use nuclear weapons against the ants. Mm. I wonder if that would have been kind of if what we would have done today. Uh, probably, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it would have come up as a plan, you know, D or C or something. Uh, but instead, the plan here is to it's so complicated. Use bazookas to fire phosphorus grenades to heat up the surface of the already hot desert floor so that the ants who don't like the heat and only hunt at night stay underground. So then you would throw in cyanide grenades to kill the ants in their nest so that they don't try to bury themselves or go away or anything mm. else like that. Very, very complicated. Uh, I did. Is it, read... is it a film that's very concerned with weapons of mass destruction and the threat in the environment? They immediately jump to <laughs> using white phosphorus and yep. cyanide gas. Yep. So we're apparently we're fine with chemical weapons, but just nuclear weapons are the bad ones. It's all, it's all good. Uh, I did also read on the internet, and I'm not a an ant expert in any way. That cyanide, the particular chemical that you that cyanide, mm. how it works on the human body and, and works on other plant and animal life, uh, doesn't work on ants. Like that chemical right. doesn't affect them at all. Who has tried? Like someone has just got really frustrated with ants in their kitchen, and they've gone right cyanide. <laughs> that's <laughs> we are escalating. Yep. Uh, so I don't. I don't know if that's true or not. I just googled does cyanide work on ants, and that was the uh, the result that came up. But yeah, I mean, it it seems like it works. Like they throw the grenades down, and then they they go in uh, to check to see if there are any ants left. They bring flamethrowers and everything. This is this is one of the weirdest aspects I find of the film. So, our heroes in the film are generally uh, a police officer and an FBI agent, and and they're two scientist advisors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and okay, okay, they do this thing with like, oh, they don't want to tell the public, and perhaps they want to keep this a secret. Fine. The assault on the ant nest is suddenly led by the two police officers who are now in army uniforms, yep. operating bazookas and carrying flamethrowers. At no point is it questioned why are they like there's literally just a local police sergeant is suddenly being deputized and is apparently proficient in all uh combined arms you know that the u.s army has at the time so here's here's why i would say that's a reasonably okay is it was after world war ii probably he was drafted there's maybe a case there to be made but uh i don't know (laughs) know, maybe so they're they're sent into the ant nest to verify that all the ants are dead and they're in like full hazmat gear and everything else no not uh, full hazmat gear they're only wearing gas masks which is weird because cyanide gas is absorbed also through the skin right and they have full parts of their body that are exposed to the to the the skin anyways i just want to point that out that they should have if there's still cyanide gas in there and it hasn't seeped away into the i mean either way they should have gotten sick from that but not important Radioactivity causes giant, giant <laughs> monsters. Doesn't matter. Holes in the film about you know, yeah. giant radioactive ants. Never mind. But you know, it's in these little details. I was watching going. Really, you're not even just going to have some backup on your assault team. You're just sending in the two local police officers and the um, female scientist who you've gone out of your way to denigrate because she. Uh, you know, uh, yep. Yeah. The uh, scientist says she has to go with them to verify. They don't know what they're looking for. Cue another hilarious scene where you know the. Um, 
the FBI agent uh, gets to uh, be condescending and basically explicitly says, this is no place for a woman. Mm -hmm. And again, are we meant to find this funny or are we not? But um, this team of totally qualified people uh, go into the um, ant nest to verify that all the ants are dead. Then they eventually stumble across one cavern, however, that that wasn't properly sealed. And a couple of live ants break through the walls uh, two heroes leap into action with flamethrowers mm-hmm. uh, towards the ants. And actually, uh, to be fair, I thought this was quite an impressive like action sequence. I mean, yeah. they're real proper flamethrowers really burning a life-size ant. I mean, obviously this is in the days before health and safety and, I, I don't know, probably unions. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> but um, it, it, was a decent, it was a decent little bit of action, I thought. I think I read that the people who were actually using the flamethrowers uh, were former military that were, or current military that were trained on how to use them and that's yeah. why you would always would see them with the face mask on is so they could be another actor uh, you'd hope the they wouldn't just strap on like you know <laughs> we're gonna do this is the last scene of the film just put it on the star and if anything goes wrong oh yeah. well it's the last scene anyway I-, I think brooks is up for it maybe that's why he's in prison is because he accidentally burned someone down <laughs> backstory uh could be could be us uh they find this cave right and it, there's eggs in there and two of them have already hatched and they're pretty sure that those are winged queen ants that escaped with some male ants so i guess some background here is that these two empty egg cases contain queen ants you see newborn queen ants have wings you found no ants with wings not a one but the brutal fact is we didn't destroy this first nest soon enough no Two young queen ants hatched out, dried their wings and flew away, each with one or more winged males. They're gone on their wedding flight. We needn't worry about the males because they'll die very quickly, but the queens... Doctor, are you telling us there are going to be other nests? A single queen is capable of laying thousands of eggs. From these will hatch dozens of other queens who may, in turn... Yeah, our our experts... Several like briefing scenes follow this as like the government kicks into action, but the like the threat for the rest of the movie is established where one of the scientists says that within a year humanity will be extinct because mm-hmm. the ants will breed so quickly that uh, then they will uh, will um, replicate and once they finish by eating all the vegetable matter they'll 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 eat the people and the uh, ants will rule over the earth and it's a funny scene where the um so the scientist who's been strictly scientific all the way through and he's talking about genetic mutations and so forth he um he suddenly slips into biblical prophecy yeah. we may be witnesses to a biblical prophecy come true and there shall be destruction and darkness come up in creation. And the beasts shall reign over the earth. But effectively, you know, it sets up the rest of the movie. So now now we have a clear, we've seen the ants and we've seen the threat that they pose. And uh, the rest of the film is, is has set on its stalls about tracking down these two queen ants that have escaped. And, uh, and if we don't find them within the space of a year, they could breed and the whole planet will be overrun by giant ants. Unless these queens are located and destroyed before they've established thriving colonies and can produce, heaven alone knows how many more queen ants, man, as the dominant species of life on Earth, will probably be extinct within a year, Doc. The rest of the movie takes place over the next couple of months, or weeks at least. A number of quick scenes, this is where you get the the various cameos or uh, people who later went on to be famous actors like... uh, uh, that's the scene for with Leonard Nimoy is 
so yeah, we, we see all these other extra scenes of people, uh, their families are attacked by ants, or there's a gentleman in Los Angeles uh, in a mental hospital who sees what he says are like uh, giant UFOs landing with mm. that look like ants. Uh, I guess some of these scenes are played for like comedy. Uh, I guess some of the, it doesn't really translate to a modern audience. Yeah, but I think a couple of scenes are so strange or broad that they were they must have been intended to be comedic and maybe were genuinely funny at the time. Yeah, but you know, 1954 humor's humor's moved on a little bit. I think I think we can run through the rest of this really quickly. There's the movie does kind of drag in the middle. I it mean, does. So you have this interesting bit at the start, big action sequence in the middle, and then. Oh, at the end, sorry, and then in the middle you have this kind of okay, just get to the point, get to the yep, get to the end, and it's a proper ninety-three minute film. It all leads to they they're pretty sure these ants have landed in the L.A. sewers, basically like the the river runoff uh, sewer canals, which is a, a real thing in Los Angeles. Uh, I remember driving past those things; they're they're huge canals because water uh, conservation is a really big thing in the Southern California, particularly Los Angeles. They're pretty sure that the ants have landed and are, are making their nest in the sewers. There are these, because you need to have an extra level of concern, there are these two missing children that the ants may have forced into the, the sewers, and so you're worrying about that. Uh, so then the military and the mayor and the president declare martial law in Los Angeles. And this is where there's a little bit of this Cold War, at least overt mm-hmm. connection is the reporters wonder why there's this press conference and one of them jokes to the other one and says has the cold war gone hot why is the army sending troops into the la area yeah and a marine regiment from pendleton what's happened why a special press conference at five o'clock on a sunday gentlemen you'll just have to wait why all these uh, vips from Washington? has the cold war gotten hot gentlemen yeah, then they announce that the ants are real please stay home there's a curfew and everyone's really super concerned about this they uh, they find where the ants are. They go to get the ants. Uh, our our main hero Brooks uh, tries to save the kids. Does save the kids, but is attacked by the ants and dies. There's flamethrowers. All kinds of stuff happens, and they finally destroy all of the ants. Right? Would that basically be the the yeah, quick way? I mean, this the is last... the point of the movie where I started to look on my phone and stop yeah, paying attention. The, so the ending is quite climactic in the sense of like scale i mean there's a lot of extras there's a lot of a lot of glory shots of like army equipment building up um there are many ants on screen and there's flamethrowers and grenades and things are collapsing it's they obviously saved like a good bit of the movie's budget for this final sequence but at the same time it does stretch a bit because obviously they want to this to be they spend so much money maybe and they want to eke it out mm-hmm. and the film does drag a, a little bit. I mean, I thought it was quite impressive that, um, you know, they kill what they kill one of the main stars. So yeah, yeah. again, so I, I didn't recognize the actor as I you know, didn't recognize him from the Shawshank Redemption, but I was reading that apparently audiences at the time would have known him as the main star of the movie. And that it was a very unusual thing for films to kill the main, the main star. Um, so I mean, think of like, you know, um, one of the reasons Psycho was so impactful at the time is mm-hmm. killing the main star in like the first reel. This film does save the death for like the last five minutes, but still, it's like it's like one of the main characters in the film. Yeah, uh, is killed, which is you know, oh, it's a little. Uh, he, he, hero- he does heroically sacrifice himself, of course, saving these these two missing children subplot that comes out of nowhere. So I would say the sense of scale at the end is very good, but at the same time, uh, I was also checking my phone because 
the, yeah, there's a lot of just sh- shots of military looking very impressive, running into sewers, and not a huge amount happening in between flamethrowers. <laughs> yeah, a, l- a lot of uh, movie felt a little bit like real time. Like they're yeah. not editing anything here. They're just they're. But it, does, it does lead to a great final moment. So where they have, you know, all all our main surviving cast members, including the old professor, have gathered, and there's two remaining ants and they'd see that these ants have discarded their wings so they're sure that this is this is the ones that they're looking for and the soldiers and the fbi agent with the flamethrower start flamethrowing these ants and uh as that happens and the film has only got 30 seconds left the the old professor gets the last word and this way the film that however subtle or not it might have been about uh, what is the film really about and its specific concerns about radiation and nuclear testing, any subtlety goes immediately out of the window as the professor yeah. gets this great final speech. Let's uh, let's act this one out here. I'll be the FBI agent. Uh, you could be Doctor Doctor Harold Medford. All right. I'll decide if okay, we do a good if we do a good job. Then I'll leave it. If not, well, then okay. I'll put the audio into it. Uh, so I'm the FBI agent. Yep. If these ants were created because of the first atomic bomb in 1945. What about all the others that have exploded since then? Nobody knows, Robert. When man entered the atomic age, he opened a door into a new world. What we'll eventually find in that new world, nobody can predict. And then music swells. Yeah. Uh, we get a scene of like the burning, thrashing ants, and then you know, title card, the end. Hard cut. Movie movie is over. Please exit the theater. I mean, it is not as. And I know films of the period because the credits are at the start. All films end. Da done. Lights up. Um, but just the way the way it ends with this very on the nose speech about um, the nuclear age. And the dangers of radioactivity and the sense of the unknown. It's, um, I mean, it sounds silly to say in a film about giant radioactive ants, but mm-hmm. it's not subtle. <laughs> it's very on the antenna, really. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, the, the thing I, I liked about it was it didn't do a um, the end or like dot 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 Rusty maybe Mark? maybe then then like just the, it'll be like the end and it will fade over an egg that what, they didn't see somewhere in the corner. Michael Caine is, is the one about the giant, the uh, killer bees. Um, I forget that. I think Michael Caine says it's one of the worst films he ever made. Uh. Uh, it's about it's about killer African bees or something. And the end of the film is that you know this. I, me- I remember seeing it once, like late night on TV. That the what the bees all fly away, and one character goes to Michael Caine, who's a scientist. Is that the end? And he goes, I don't know. <laughs> film ends <laughs> it's like what just give me some resolution it was a re- yep. terrible end to a terrible movie yeah uh, the end uh look behind you uh, yeah kind of thing yeah, or uh, also remind me of the um awful matthew broderick uh, godzilla remake right right you finally sat through it, not a great movie and it's like okay but godzilla's defeated da 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 we're blown up madison square garden and then you see some surviving eggs and you're like, oh, really? Are we going to do this again? <laughs> At least the film doesn't do that to you. God's give you a definitive end. And it's like, it's like the film is going, and over to you, humanity. You know, will you let this be your fate? Or will mm-hmm. you actually get your act together and stop testing nuclear weapons? 
Well, it does set up the premise of, because of the idea, uh, well, what about all the other tests? So is it just a thing where anytime there's that level of radiation, will that cause other monster movies to, uh, to start to be a thing? I mean, I think if this movie was done today, it clearly would create a, uh, a radioactive, an RCU, a, a radio, radioactivity cinematic universe <laughs> type thing. Um, yeah, I don't anyways, it, that that's the movie. Uh we we focused a lot at the very beginning of the film and then run through the end because that's kind of, It's it's quite an unevenly paced movie. Yeah. I will say that about it. And maybe maybe it's your limitations but I imagine the ants were expensive. I think they so did perhaps make, I think they made maybe 5 of them in total so you yeah. never see more than 3 or so on the screen yeah. at any given point. You see the same one that got shot its antenna off. You see that at the end of the film so you see one of the ants happens to have its antenna down it's because it's the same damn ant from earlier yeah i mean i say you know anyone who really likes editing could probably take the scissors to this film and reduce it to like the length of a twilight zone episode you could really yeah, yeah. there's a whole sequence in the middle where it's a police procedural they obviously need to pad it out so they put in bits of like supposedly comedic scenes watch the beginning fast forward through watch the ending come away with a, a lovely little message about the dangers of atmospheric nuclear testing yeah well, let's let's talk about that right now. Let's talk about if those dangers are founded or just just movie dangers. So let's get into our our nuclear discussion. Let's get super critical about this. Uh, I've got a f- couple points I want to talk about with you, and then if you have some things you want to add as well, sure. so we'll talk about radiation and giant bugs. Uh, is is that real? Is that something we should be concerned about? Spoil- spoiler warning: No, but you know, let's get into it. Um, <laughs> Uh, I want to talk about ants and insects as a metaphor in nuclear war discussions for the dangers of nuclear war. Because in more serious literature, Mm. this is definitely something that reoccurs quite a lot. The only thing that would survive in a nuclear war are cockroaches. That kind of joke. Uh, Cockroaches Mm. and Mick Jagger is, I think, the joke. (laughs) But yeah, so that, that is a real metaphor that's deployed. So I would love to talk more about that. I think it would be kind of interesting to talk a little bit about nuclear testing at Alamogordo, New Mexico, and a little bit of the the history around there and how uh, nuclear testing evolved to be a thing where people were not so concerned, well, concerned at the beginning, then not concerned for a while, and then a bunch of things like accidents, radiation Mm. fallout, and movies like this that have started to get people a little bit more concerned. I think you also want to talk a little bit about the world's changing relationship with nuclear weapons, not just a, a B-movie type plot, but you know how this all comes together in a real-world context and not just a, a fun film discussion that we're having on a Saturday morning. Yeah, exactly. I think if I have one mission, it's to convince some of the listeners why they should perhaps take these like 1950s science fiction B movies uh, more seriously than their ridiculous premise and often uh, paltry budgets uh, would perhaps lead one to to view them as being a proper piece of art or even um, straight up history. There's, I think there's, uh, when I teach about nuclear weapons, I use these kind of films as quite an important just source material for getting into the mindset of the 50s, which is a really important piece in our changing understanding and relationship with nuclear weapons and radiation. Cool. Well, let's let's get into it. Uh, all right. So radiation and giant bugs, is it real? Uh, <laughs> the, no. All right. So next topic. Uh, <laughs> but no, I mean, so there there are some case studies of places where radiation mm. has um, has gone up on a higher level. I mean, I think radiation is one of those fascinating things that people sometimes 
forget about the fact that you constantly, if you are happen to be on the planet Earth, or even if you're not on the planet Earth, if you happen to be at the space station right now, you are yep. being bombarded with radiation constantly. There's radiation from the sun. There's radiation from the concrete in your buildings. There's radiation from radon in the ground. Like, your body is always being hit by background yep. radiation. And even radiation that you get from flying in an airplane is a pretty significantly higher dose than... Yep. Then background my, radiation. My sister's a, a, a air stewardess, and uh, I, as as you would expect of me, when she got her job, <laughs> mentioned that to her, and she she's like, "Oh, great, thanks. Something else for me to be anxious about." <laughs> yeah, I was like, yeah. Sorry, I'm a nuclear nerd. I can't help it. You got to give her uh, one of the little pens for Christmas that she can check like, check her dose or dose meter. Yeah, or people people in Britain, if you live in either the Cotswolds or Edinburgh, because they might have granite at those areas, you get a much higher dose of just ambient radiation just because of what comes out of uh out of the, uh, the particular geology of those regions right and, and so radiation is essentially you know it depends on how you define not depends on how you define it but depends on what use of the word you're using yeah um, so in society we get radiation and radioactivity mixed up as, mm-hmm. and, and used quite interchangeably Right. So, so radiation, uh, in when people think about it in terms of the bomb, uh, it's because either a heavy element is being broken apart into smaller elements. So uranium and plutonium are fairly heavy in the sense that they have lots of uh, individual protons. They're, they're, they're fairly heavy ele- elements, and that's why they're easy to fission, to break apart, because it takes a lot of energy to hold those elements together. And those are the ones that are generally unstable. And either you put a, a neutron into them and, and can break apart the atom itself and split it into, you know, it doesn't just disappear. It, it basically just transmutates. But the bond that's holding those elements together to form a piece of uranium gets released. And that gets released in a form of energy, but also an element of radioactivity comes out of that. So it could be alpha particles or beta particles mm. or gamma particles or neutrons you know things that sometimes cause a lot of problems uh like neutrons are pretty nasty if they were to hit you at a high level gamma radiation is pretty bad and what it does you know or or things like alpha particles which can be blocked pretty simply by your skin or clothing but if you ingest them then they can't get out of your body so uh the famous example in britain of the um the the russian who was poisoned with polonium mm-hmm. in his tea uh, i can't remember if it's alpha or beta radiation that uh polonium gives off but because it was inside his system all this radiation wasn't being blocked by his skin but rather being kept in his body and so he was poisoned by it it was pretty grisly but it just shows how you know uh, something that wouldn't normally have been that much of a threat to the human body when it was ingested, all of a sudden, right. um, became it was literally lethal. And, and it's lethal because the the energy that's being released it can get into your the literally in the atoms of your body, the the cellular structure, and it can destroy the cells. It can destroy DNA. Uh, it can uh, cause DNA. You know your your code of your body of this cell says it's going to produce itself and reproduce and it serves this function and if you combine a bunch of them together you get a heart uh, or you get your bones and those kind of things but what happens with radiation is it it causes that structure to become uh, corrupted or at least not how you want it to be so it can cause it to reproduce rapidly which causes cancer or it can cause them to fail and then you your bodily functions can break down or I guess, then this is essentially mutations. It can cause your cells to say, "I'm going to become a giant ant now," uh, mm. and and you can cause growth. Uh, that's what the the premise is: is that because radiation can affect your DNA, but traditionally in a way that causes you to become 
uh, sick or ill mm. or uh, infertile or things like that. And that's kind of what people in science fiction has said. We've seen mutations happen. This must be something that could happen if it's just calibrated correctly or happened to be, I guess, in this situation, unlucky. Uh, but there yeah. are examples of this. You can see places like uh, where there are nuclear power accidents, like at Chernobyl or Fukushima, and you can go to those places and see where there's a continual release of radiation, either high level, like in Chernobyl, near the containment site, or Fukushima in Japan, where it's relatively low in the surrounding area, but pretty bad at the actual site itself. Uh, uh-huh. You can go to those places and see how radiation has infected plant and animal life. And one of the doctors who is in the Department of Biology at the University of South Carolina, or me being from Southern California, calls it the fake USC. Um, Dr. Timothy, another Timothy here, Dr. Timothy Massau studies these issues and has his research has looked at animal populations. And essentially his conclusion is these populations are teetering his words on the brink of extinction and continue to suffer. Instead of producing giant ants, his research has shown that there are severe genetic damage, uh, reduced survival capabilities of the affected populations. Uh, seen a lot of uh, cataracts in the eyes of the animals, smaller brain sizes, uh, reduced fertility of the animals because they're no longer able to uh, produce normally. In birds, they're they're irregularly sized. There's have stunted plumage in terms of their feathers. And his conclusion is the big effect is going to be having populations that are unhealthy and less fit, less able to deal with changes in the environment, less able to repopulate. Much different than producing amazing like X-Men level genetic mutations. It's really mostly tends to be not great. Yeah, it's one of the bleaker aspects of like you know, studying the, the idea of nuclear war and thinking about what would come after is the idea of not only would some people survive, you'd be surviving in this, especially if it was a, a large uh, exchange this irradiated area in which people would persist for quite a long time and nature would persist and okay in the very 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 long span of history you know i'm sure nature would find a way to cope and adapt and that kind of thing but for the people who lived in that area okay maybe if you got acute radiation sickness you'd die quickly but for everyone else you would carry on and the people would reproduce and you would have offspring and it would just be this gradual process of deterioration and just and suffering whether it's physical or 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 I see the effect of like brain development and that kind of thing. And you know, call, you know, call back to that previous episode we did on threads, which tried to, to show that in a very small mm-hmm. period of time. But And they mentioned in that in that particular movie, they mentioned cataracts. Uh, yeah. That was an explicit thing that people mentioned is that people are becoming increasingly blind with the ozone and it can't combine that with the uh, the ozone layer being destroyed. People are going blind at an early age. Yeah, as I was fine when I read about these things, that's one of the most the thing that sticks with you is like the most lasting and bleak ideas. The idea of mankind through its own genius and folly it manages to pollute the whole planet to the extent of all living things, including even plants, um, would be permanently changed and poisoned by this environment. And it wouldn't be just be, oh, you know, uh, you will have evolution and some of them will learn to carry on. It's just that a lot of living things would just have shorter, more miserable lifespans. Mm-hmm. Um, just... Yeah, you mean go go humanity. Well done. <laughs> well, that, so that, that's definitely a dark story. I'm going to pair this with a little bit of a fun story that I, I found here in the course of the research uh, that shows again this nature adapting piece, but a little less bleak. 
Although, oh, I guess if you can be the judge of this when the story is over. Uh, so I, I found this article in a, a British paper. Uh, so it starts literally with the line, keep calm and carry on building. That's the motto of 100,000 or so wood ants stranded without food in a nuclear bunker until they starve. Fun way to start this story. Uh, <laughs> and what it is, is there was an abandoned nuclear weapons storage bunker in Poland that was once used by the Soviet Union. And uh, there is a colony of wood ants living without light, near freezing temperatures, and no access to any food source. And the these scientists who were going there looking at something else saw these, this like this huge colony of ants and wondering... How are they surviving? There's no queen ants. There's no male ants. All worker ants. And there's no food or light or anything. Uh, So in 2013, when these ants were discovered, turns out what they were doing was there was a, a ventilation pipe that was feeding air into the bunker it was normally the air can only can only air can flow in and nothing can kind of can flow uh no no radioactivity can flow in it kind of usually depends of if they has a little hat on top of it a little little pipe mm. the ants were falling into the ventilation pipe because the vent top rusted out the ants built a huge anthill on top of it and it just happened to be that every once in a while ants would fall down into into the the hole and they could crawl up the walls but none of them can crawl horizontally across the ceiling so they couldn't get out so they would fall in there was no food or anything so eventually the ants would die they they fall in they starve but their instincts were so strong they decided just to keep building so they built their colony um which is estimated to be upwards of two million dead ants is the foundation of this um and this would serve, this would end. It, it should collapse, but because there's so many ants that keep falling through the rusted pipe on accident, they keep replacing themselves and they keep su- surviving. Essentially, there's no queen ant, there's no food source, there's nothing. So unlike the ants in them, there's no queen. It's just an endless stream of doomed worker ants building a colony in the dark until each of them starve to death. Merry Christmas, everyone. Uh, yeah. We're recording this on the fifteenth of December. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I thought I, this would be a fun story, but. You know, obviously, it being a former nuclear weapons site, uh, there's no bombs there. There's no radioactivity or anything. But it is an interesting place where ants uh, have found a home, I guess, a home uh, for this. feels very much um, this. sorry, Dr. Malcolm, but life doesn't really always find a way uh, necessarily. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it finds a way if you just keep uh, having lemmings Feeding falling over. Some external, you know, non-closed environment. Yeah, yeah. I, I just find that story so interesting. I'll link to the in my recommendations of stuff to read afterwards. I'll yep. link to it. It's funny so you mentioned that shorthand that we have. You know, after nuclear war, the only thing that will survive will be cockroaches. I mean, so I get I'm very much a social scientist mm-hmm. uh, rather than proper scientist. And I don't know if you can answer this, but I, mean, I know I have definitely read that apparently that is also a complete myth. So not only would they be vulnerable to the same uh, radioactive polluted environments? But apparently cockroaches have evolved to basically live off human waste, hmm. at least the ones that we think of. And in terms of the size and numbers, same as rats, so that if humanity died off, apparently so too would the populations, if not completely, then at least significantly. So the idea of like hmm. this irradiated wasteland just populated by like rats and cockroaches, apparently that is itself maybe a useful shorthand for like anti-nuclear weapon campaigners, but it is also a complete myth because these are basically parasitic species that rely on the waste of industrialized human societies. Hmm. So if you take away that society, you also take away, you know, or everything that is on the other trophic layers beneath us. Well, that's that's really interesting. And, and that's a terrific segue into the next point that I wanted to, to raise because it does try to deploy that metaphor. Mm. So there's a terrific 
book and a series of articles and everything uh, written by Jonathan Schell, uh, S-C-H-E-L-L, who was an American writer and thinker, activist on nuclear issues, environmental issues, human rights issues. Uh, For many years, he wrote for The New Yorker for a number of years. An article that he wrote called Republic of Insects and Grass from 1982 in The New Yorker eventually got put into a book with a couple of other writings uh, called The Fate of the Earth. It was one of the first books that I read on this topic in high school on Mm. on nuclear issues, and it's so well written. It's one of the best uh, written works in terms of prose and combining very bleak details and well-written structure of of how he writes, but also the scientific details in a very approachable way. Uh, And he deploys this metaphor as a powerful description of what the consequences of nuclear war are so i would let me just read through this really quickly it's like two paragraphs and then we can then discuss kind of what that means and and then get into the 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 issue of the science of it he says that the one class of animals containing a number of species quite likely to survive a nuclear attack at least the short run is the insect class for which in most known cases the lethal doses lie between 2,000 rads and about a hundred thousand rads Insects, therefore, would be destroyed selectively. Unfortunately, for the rest of the environment, many of the most phytophagous species, insects that feed directly on vegetation, have very high tolerances and therefore would be expected to survive disproportionately, and then to multiply greatly in the aftermath of an attack. The demise of their natural predators, the birds, would enhance their success. Since grass also has a fairly high tolerance for radiation, Shell concludes that after a nuclear war, it appears that the at the outset, the United States would become a republic of insects and grass, which is a very powerful metaphor for imagining what war mm. would do to the world. That's something you can you can bleakly picture. I've seen war- images of just grasslands and and insects, and that's all that's left of the United States or of the world. Mm. That paints a powerful picture and it's one of those things it's easy to say well a nuclear war would result in 4.5 mega deaths and buildings yeah. would be destroyed and there would be radiation everywhere and all that kind of stuff but to say like here's what it would look like in the end it's a something i think that people can point um, to yeah i imagine it's particularly evocative in america I mean, so europe is so relatively small and densely populated but just uh, knowing so much about American culture, you've uh, certainly seen plenty of images of like the Dust Bowl or the Great Plains. I imagine you can, it's not hard to picture like an, an entire continent being returned to that where you have areas where it kind of already looks like that. Whereas in Europe, you know, you find it hard to imagine what like Britain or France would look like after mm-hmm. a nuclear war. You're like, oh, just a bunch of green hills? Okay. We just don't, yeah, we don't have those those desolate, unoccupied places because we're so densely populated and built up. Or, or it's just so I'm recording this in the middle of a storm in Ireland, and it's just <laughs> rained so much that everything is so green that you can't really imagine anything else. Yeah, I, one of Shell's big thing is is that he says, you know, nuclear war is dangerous. It's a problem if it happens. It's world ending. It's extinction level event. Yeah. And his whole way of trying to pe- help people think about it was is the the government. And the military and popular and people who are in charge of this will have every incentive to stop it. They will put diplomatic approaches to stop it. They will have all these command and control systems to prevent accidents and things like that. But his worry is, is that even if there's a one percent chance yeah. that it will happen, it's a one percent chance that leads to one hundred percent extinction. 
So that has to always be your calculation of how you think about this. It could go wrong. And if it does, it's over. So then it becomes, well, what is gift? We have to weigh that with the benefits that you get yeah. from, from it. And no, that's well, just. Well, for deterrence theorists, it's like. So, so they, they hate that <laughs> when, when people well, when people say oh the threat to use nuclear weapons is not believable especially when you have mutual vulnerability and you know the other side will retaliate the idea of like well okay maybe it's not rational for me to use weapons and maybe the other side knows i probably won't use nuclear weapons but if there's that one percent possibility or even that there'd be an accidental use and all of a sudden we're in a nuclear war that very small chance of enormous absolute cost is enough to make deterrence work mm-hmm. so even though you think this is this is yes this is mutual suicide and it is not credible to threaten mutual suicide because you both just end up dead and no one gets anything if there is a chance however minuscule that that would happen uh, that is enough to keep the system functioning especially if you have so thomas Schelling wrote about the, the idea of the threat that leaves something to chance so this idea of you might have this irrational aspect that comes in this uh, so so like an accident mm-hmm. so the way jfk was so worried in the cuban missile crisis that not that the either side would deliberately attack each other but that because you have aircraft flying so close to each other and ships in such close um, proximity there might be an accident and a sudden unintentional escalation so that and again that threat that leaves something to chance of so everything spiraling out of control is enough to keep deterrence working um right so is, is, i think it's interesting idea that anti-nuclear campaigners and deterrence theorists both <laughs> kind of gravitate on this idea of this the tiny chance and absolute costs but you can you can uh, you can frame it either way as being a reason to get rid of all nuclear weapons or a reason why nuclear weapons actually do work as a deterrent well it is it's interesting if you want to uh, nitpick either of those metaphors uh because you you did mention like well yeah would uh can insects actually survive with radiation and cockroaches and in and also the idea of humans disappeared uh would cockroaches or rats or things like that survive that's a really interesting question because according to at least shell his his approach is there are no more birds because of their yeah. they, they're they're pretty Ill, uh, susceptible to radiation so insects no longer can that was the thing that would hold them in check. So it's this idea of there are certain keystone species yep. in an environment. You take some of those away, other populations will will, will expand. Uh, if you don't have things hunting, if you don't have foxes, then you have a lot of uh, squirrels. And if there's too many squirrels, they eat all the vegetation. Yeah, I remember a video that went viral. I think on Twitter about it might have been six months ago. It was about, I think it was about Yellowstone National Park and mm-hmm. how a couple of years ago they reintroduced wolves. And when they did that, the wolves started taking care, the managing the deer population, which meant that other populations um, were reduced. That kind of thing. And, and over the space of a couple of years, the whole ecosystem rebalanced to the way it should have been um, before the wolves were eliminated. Mm-hmm. And so some of the comments were like, "Oh my gosh, this shows that wolves are this keystone species, and they're so important." And other people, went, no, what this shows is humanity is terrible, and because we hunted all the wolves, <laughs> all the rest of nature went out of balance. But it's interesting. Uh, there's definitely a couple of schemes in Britain where they're talking about reintroducing wolves or other types of species hmm. because humanity has um, hunted these to the point of extinction. It's typically meant, particularly species like deer, have overpopulated so much that they've now completely skewed the ecosystem in one way. Hmm. 
Um, I suppose it's, it's the idea of a complex, and this is again relevant to nuclear theorists, but the idea of complexity and interactive complexity of a system with so many moving parts that you can't really predict how they all function together. And if you take one thing away, the whole system can collapse. So much like, strategy, much like much like threads being pulled out of a sweater, right? Threads, exactly. Yeah. It's like so the, a nuclear strategy, this is the fear, and this is people like Scott Sagan have written. So the why the you know, they say like deterrence might work most of the time, but that one percent chance is enough because accidents do happen, and at some point something will go wrong, and you can't guarantee that you won't get this series of chain reactions mm-hmm. through this interactive complexity that we're going to end up with this catastrophic war that even if it's inverted commas limited can threaten so many different species on earth uh, and you know that is it, it, that small possibility is enough to campaign against nuclear weapons right and that that small possibility that basically leads to a bunch of small insects uh, <laughs> being the only thing that's left is i think a very powerful metaphor and it's one that sticks sticks in there pretty much well the only thing that will survive are insects and cockroaches and things like that and even if the there are elements to say well they won't be an amazing number of like, they won't thrive but i think shell at least says they'll be selectively destroyed there'll be some that will be left and every other thing yeah. will will die off so that'll be at least for a while what the world will look like it's a very powerful picture because it is hard for people to grasp human extinction on its one end uh especially when you have all these movies like uh 2012 right is that yep. the movie 2012 yep. or other other world ending events you can picture like something like that happening but you can't picture really what would the world look like a hundred years after that yeah i think the bbc also it might have been the bbc once did like a very short documentary series on i think it was called something like what comes after or after us or something and it was done as that thing of the, you know they pick cities around the world and they show if humanity like the leftovers just disappeared tomorrow not a catastrophe we all just vanished what would the world look like five years 10 years 100 years and then like thousands of years and it was absolutely fascinating i love that it, it is, it is, i don't know if it's the same one but there's a u.s series that i remember seeing i love that that might have been it, it might be talking about the same thing that i've probably seen on the bbc or something but yeah it, it's because it's it is hard to wrap your head around that and uh, it's even hard to wrap your head around those kind of time scales so I remember reading about it. One of the things that happens, like, oh, you know, um, uh, all these people have uh, dogs are so popular all around the world. Mm-hmm. There are dogs everywhere. Um, but if all humans disappeared, apparently very quickly, all the small species of dogs would disappear because dogs would basically have to go back to being feral. Mm-hmm. And it would be the large dogs would basically outcompete the small dogs. So goodbye, chihuahuas. And <laughs> everyone who has, like, you know, uh, uh, Alsatians or whatever, they, they would thrive. <laughs> There's this weird thing of, like, humanity interfering with evolution. And if we all just vanished in a blink, um, it's interesting how some of these shows or writings in this case make you think about humanity's role and um yep how all the rest of nature has been molded around us but what would happen if we if through human action we skewed it one way or another that that series is fascinating too because there's pieces of it that are about uh well what would happen if there were no humans to keep a nuclear power plant running mm. and what would happen in terms of meltdowns and radioactivity and how would that affect things and one of my favorite television shows is a show comedy called um a comedy show called last man on earth yep yep and last man on earth will forte he was he liked that series that we're talking about so much he said this is a really good idea for a television show because what if the only person to survive was like a schlump uh, kind of person (laughs) and then of course 
spoiler alert, for later seasons of that show, a lot of those different points, like what would a nuclear power plant look like with no humans running it, which causes them to have to leave the United States because of all the nuclear power plants exploding and causing radioactivity and everything, those plot points get introduced into the show. So I really am waiting for a good chance to do an episode, or maybe a mini nuke episode mm. on that. So now that I know that you watch that show, well, we also much less seriously, there's a show on the CW called The Hundred, yeah, yeah, which yeah. is so it's a proper guilty pleasure in the sense of it's it's incredibly silly. Uh, it's like a very much standard like CW show, and it's meant for like you know sixteen to twenty is probably the key demographic mm. or something. But it is set in a world. Uh, um, after a catastrophic nuclear war, but everyone who was in space, set in the future, and uh, hmm. a couple of nations had space stations, and all those space stations combined, and so humanity has survived in one way, but um, and eventually they come back to Earth. And uh, but one of the legacies is there were all these nuclear power plants that somehow survived this great war, and then they start going right ah. into meltdown, and um, it's it's I mean, it's completely silly, and it's a properly turn off your brain, but it's also a real guilty pleasure. All right, well let's um, let, let's do an episode of the future where we combine Last Man on Earth and One Hundred, and talk about that. Um, all right, so let's move on to the next topic I have here, which is you know the premise of nuclear testing in Alamogordo, causing radioactive ants in the desert, uh, is is the is the plot of them. But let's uh, do a real quick discussion about. Uh, nuclear testing in New Mexico, just to provide a little extra level of context here. Nuclear testing, 1945, Trinity test, first place where uh, a nuclear bomb was detonated or a nuclear device was detonated. And then 70 years since then, you you can still actually get radioactivity signals popping up at that particular site. It's it's said to be about 10 times higher than the normal background radiation, um, but it's still relatively low. If you go there for an hour or so, which is open twice a year to go and visit, uh, once in April and once in October, and I'm going to try to go to the site in October of next year. That's my goal. I went to the Nevada test site this year uh, in 2018, so I'm going to try to go to the New Mexico site in, in 2019. Uh, but if you go there for about an hour, it's about uh, half of the total radiation exposure you would get on an average day just from natural sources, medical sources around the world. So it's it's there, but it's not as bad as it possibly could be. Uh, but it's always fascinating to see, as through this testing program, what role radiation has had in, in popular mm. culture. So uh, a great article that I'll, I recommend people reading from 2012 uh, by David Ropik uh, in Scientific America uh, called The Rise of Nuclear Fear, where I think he was reviewing a book, uh, which I'll quote at the very end of this, uh, which was how the United States or how we learned to fear radiation. He, he cites a number of different uh, movies, 1936, uh, something called The Invisible Ray, where Boris Karloff, who's known to be, I think he was, was Boris Karloff the mummy? Uh, in a mm, lot of the old Universal films, uh, he used a radium ray to cure disease, but then it caused him to glow in the dark and he could kill anyone he touched. Uh, there were a bunch of Flash Gordon movies about radiation, uh, atomic furnaces powering giant ships. Uh, there was a movie in 1940 called Murder in the Air, which is about a, a U.S. agent guarding the secret of an atomic ray cannon that could shoot enemy planes out of the sky. <laughs> Fun reference here is that Ronald Reagan played the FBI or U.S. <laughs> agent. And maybe that inspired Very Star Wars as well. Yeah, it inspired him <laughs> for that. Uh, but his whole point was that, quote, despite these science fiction fears, the public's attitude towards radiation remained decidedly positive. The news media carried regular reports of radiation benefits. Three quarters of the headlines on articles about radiation in American magazines were either neutral or equally divided between positive. Then the bombs went off. 
and a terrible flash in our relationship of nuclear radiation exploded into the profound angst that has shaped so many aspects of world history and modern culture. And there are certain touch points that I see uh, here from there. So like in the 50s, this is kind of get bleed a little bit into what you're going to talk yeah. about. So I'll, I won't go into too much detail. But one of the identifying points are nuclear testing, in particular, the Castle Bravo tests, uh, which was a big atmospheric test out in the Bikini Atoll in the Pacific, causing radiation damage on a fishing trawler. The Lucky Dragon 5 was a huge media attention of some of the dangers of nuclear war and nuclear radiation, but also a best-selling book uh, by yeah. David Bradley in 1948 called No Place to Hide. And uh, this discussed radiation dangers in great detail. Have you have you read this book before? I've only no, just seen I've, references to I've it. I've read about it. Yeah, that's um, what I keep seeing. I should yeah. actually read the book at some point. Yeah. And also, I think one of the... So, so there are 23 people on the... It was a tuna fishing boat. Mm. So they were all quite heavily irradiated and uh it was so tragic i was uh, uh, as so this this the boat limps back to port all the crew members were treated and apparently they were all given blood transfusions but the blood they were given was already infected with hepatitis c so they all oh, caught that God. and apparently they, so one only one person died as a result because it turns out he had another underlying health condition that was aggravated by the hepatitis c and the mm. acute radiation syndrome um, but I think one of the people who survived, and, and, and many of them survived you know, into um, properly into the 80s and 90s, uh, one of the crew members did write a, a book. Um, I think it was called something like, uh, like The Lucky Dragon and I, hmm. um, which I came across. So I don't know if that's available or in translation or anything, but um, definitely been a couple of books written about it. Well, I've never read anything directly, but it, it's one of those, um, if you read it, a small amount about nuclear weapons, it gets referenced, uh, yeah. you will come across the phrase lucky dragon uh, pretty quickly. It's, it was a very important cultural moment, definitely. Uh, so this book here, No Place to Hide, it was written by a, a doctor. Uh, it's kind of like a semi-autobiographical story of his work as a radiological safety s- section officer. And it was about Operation Crossroads series of nuclear tests. So after the atomic bombings on Japan, the U.S. public was curious, I think is the right word for it, about what nuclear radiation could do, what the bomb was to do, because obviously the the war that was ongoing was ended from their perspective because of atomic bombings. So then they're like, we need to know more information. We're curious what this means. So Crossroads was was not just a scientific endeavor to figure out, you know, new things about what the bomb could do, but also was a bit of propaganda, a lot of propaganda to show people, we got this. Here's all the amazing things that the bomb can do, but it's safe if you control everything just the right way. The The public uh, was invited to see the test through newsreels. A lot of celebrities showed up to try to just to, to show <laughs> everything's perfectly fine. Uh, and this really tried to humanize the bomb. Uh, and after the tests took place and there was all this video footage, public interest in bomb testing dropped because they figured, you know, it's like no longer interesting anymore. This amazing scientific achievement, world altering event. Future tests were done in secret without observers for many, many years. And really, it, it took Bradley's book, which was a bestseller, uh, to show the behind the scenes. It provided data on radiation illnesses, on plant life, on humans, pollution that would cause by atomic tests. And it offered a counter argument to official government reports. And then you introduce, you know, movies and film into this. You can really see how the movie Them has a fascinating, unique place in history 
it's not just the historical piece that you know facts and government reports and in uh, real life events but film and pop culture really shapes how people understand these things uh, for either positive or negative ways one reason films like this are interesting is so they provide a really interesting snapshot as to what society was worried about at the time all, all science fiction and and horror in a way it's it should be about something else so whatever the premise is always exploring another topic through this ridiculous premise normally like a you know a morale if star trek's often a morality play or that kind of thing uh the tw- if you ever watch the classic twilight zone the they they often have like a twist and you find out the end what what it's really about mm-hmm. and, you know leaves you thinking uh and then rod sterling comes on and does his final thing to you know to really put a bow on it um mm-hmm. So on one hand, these kind of B-movies, they ref- they reflect what society is worried about at the time, but they're also a, po- a very popular medium, very visual, reaches a lot of people, and they're a very, also an active way of disseminating a message, or, or in this case, perhaps fear and anxiety. So they're both reflection and also an active agent in like social trends. So I find this period between the 40s and the 50s an absolutely fascinating time in nuclear weapons and nuclear history because i think as a modern modern audiences or just modern sensibilities when we approach nuclear weapons you can't help but do it with certain cultural baggage and programming already built in so you think of nuclear weapons you think of a mutual nuclear war you think of escalation mm-hmm. um, you think of phrases like nuclear winter the end of all life on earth nuclear weapons are bad things and will lead to extinction those are valid concerns, but they are concerns that have grown up and been developed across a number of uh, generations, different events. We have been programmed to think in a certain way, if you like, by society adapting to the ball over all these years. Immediately after the first use of nuclear weapons, however, in 1945, none of that programming existed. So there's an absolutely fascinating period where, so you touched upon the prehistory kind of before 1945, before anyone had heard of an atomic bomb, we knew about radioactivity, but radiation was seen as almost like a positive thing. So there's this weird history in like the 30s of uh, people deliberately dosing themselves with radiation because they thought it was healthy. All these um, radium-related products, people kind of thinking it was good for you, you know, taking your your daily dose of radiation and like vital rays, you'll be stronger the next day. (laughs) Yeah, we we went into that in our Fallout video game episode, but also the episode we did on atomic alcohol uh, because we were drinking things that were atomic themed, (laughs) uh, trying to get into that particular piece. So I I enjoyed uh, that aspect. You do look back on it now and you think, oh my God, you idiots. How did you not know? But it would be like, if you find out that eating five portions of fruit and veg a day actually was toxic, yeah. you know, that's something we're all told now is good for you. And, you know, imagine one day in the future, like, oh, my God, they were eating fruits and vegetables, the idiots. <laughs> <laughs> but obviously, in 1945, you have the public learn about nuclear weapons through these two awful attacks. But there's this fascinating moment, especially at least for the victorious Western powers and particularly America, where nuclear weapons were, despite having seen their destructive power was seen as positive because as you touched on they ended the war as far as the public were concerned they were and and the u.s was victorious and we and, were all, the, and the u.s was also the only one to have them absolutely and, and so they were almost in a sense the in, instrument of victory and so there's kind of weird rush um to be associated with nuclear weapons nuclear weapons and nuclear science was the literal cutting edge sorry figurative cutting edge uh. of 
human progress and achievement. And you get all these businesses trying to jump on the nuclear bandwagon. Uh, I think it's like if you go through like the um, uh, Nevada phone book at the time, you see all these businesses suddenly start adding like atomic into the into their titles. And it's quite a famous picture. I think it's like was it Miss Nevada competition for like 1946, and the winners they're wearing a a dress that looks like a mushroom cloud. And you look back in that now and you, you cringe at how tone deaf it is. This is a weapon of mass destruction. But the point is, society viewed this innocently and naively, but also positively. So you have this initial period of enthusiasm and naivety and definitely an element of, of triumphalism. I mean, obviously, Japan's having a completely different reaction to atomic weapons at the time. So we shouldn't forget to think about how the rest of the world saw this. But I find the, the early 50s be fascinating because it's when that period of naivety and even positivity starts to change. And there's a couple of different drivers of that. One of the biggest is the atmospheric nuclear testing that starts to take place that we've referred to here, and also coupled with the development of the hydrogen bomb. Almost as important as the development of atomic weapons themselves, because uh, this weapon that you thought was already the most destructive thing in that could possibly exist is suddenly exceeded by a weapon of orders of magnitude greater. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so often, I mean, even the scientists uh, making hydrogen weapons didn't necessarily uh, know what was going to happen until they detonated this. I think so. One of the more, more interesting ones is the um, Castle Bravo shot. So, uh, this on the first of March, nineteen fifty-four. So, uh, around about the time them's already been made and might have already come out. I don't know when in nineteen fifty-four it was released. So, this was preceded nineteen fifty-two by the first uh, hydrogen bomb test, mm -hmm. the Ivy Mike shot. But that wasn't a bomb. Like imagine something dropped by a plane. That was something that was like the size of a building to prove the science. Uh, Castle Bravo, though, in '54 was a deliverable weapon. It turned out to be 15 megatons, which is the largest ever U.S. nuclear test. But um, before they detonated it, um, the scientists didn't know how big it was going to be. And how they discovered this was actually by blowing it up. And there's an interesting parallel to that that, that um, test also is the first scene of the most recent Godzilla remake. Mm -hmm. That film gets it wrong because it implies that modern weapons are actually bigger than that, whereas actually that was the largest yeah. ever U.S. <laughs> but I know, I know you've done that in a previous episode. <laughs> Uh, continued nuclear testing. These are happening not below ground, but you know, in the atmosphere or by blowing up chains of islands. The weapons themselves are getting orders of magnitude bigger, and eventually this starts to filter through into, into the public consciousness. So despite the US government's attempt to actively tell people, don't be afraid of radioactivity, as you said, you know, like, oh, we got this, mm -hmm. don't worry, it can't harm you, or even if it is harmful, uh, there are steps you can take to, to protect yourself. And U.S. civil defense films continue to push this this idea quite strongly um, through atmospheric testing, uh, through incidents such as the Lucky Dragon irradiation, through uh, a journalis journalism and books being published. Gradually, society becomes much more um, anxious about the idea of nuclear weapons in general, but particularly uh, focuses in on this idea of radioactivity, mm -hmm. of this great but unknown force. I think about how mysterious this would be if you if you genuinely didn't know what radioactivity was. Nobody knew what it really did to the human body, to to nature, um, and the it, fact it would, that it's it, invisible. I think people are pretty mm. always concerned about. You know, p pollution you can see, you can see acid rain, you can see uh, sludge in your rivers, but radiation is invisible, and you don't know what's happening. That's that's always and, been a, and it lingers after the explosion. I mean, one of the most saddest aspects of nuclear weapons if you like it's not just that it's, it's something that so many pieces of nuclear culture have done the idea of oh after the war is finished 
the horror continues because these, you know, it gets blown around or the area is irradiated. This is the first weapon humanity has that continues to kill after the war has already been over, even if the war only lasted 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I find the this appeared in the early 50s, particularly like, you know, around, around about 53, 54, when all these B-movies start to come out. It's this moment of change in society's, um, the attention being paid in particular to nuclear weapons, a specific anxiety about radioactivity, an ignorance about its effects, but uh, also a curiosity, as you as you mentioned. This is finding expression um, through all of these B-movies, these silly monster movies. But it's also, I think these films are quite active in pushing this idea of, oh, actually, this might be something you should be afraid of. Whether or not it causes giant ants, whatever, mm-hmm. but... Uh, definitely this is some force we don't understand. And I think it's an interesting theme in all of these films. Not only do they use radioactivity as a means of, you know, the MacGuffin to, to make these things mutate, but in all of these films there's a common theme of, of mankind is acting at the end edge of its own genius and wisdom i think there's there's a good reason to watch <laughs> some of these films even though they vary wildly in quality because they provide a very important window into that particular transition into a much more contemporary mindset where we automatically think of nuclear weapons as bad dangerous and we specifically tie into ideas of radioactivity and danger not only to the people who are hit by the bomb but the entire ecosystem, even the whole planet. I think that is where this narrative emerges from, if you like. Yeah. Um, and in some extent, it, it is a specific reaction against this the development of the hydrogen bomb and particular atmospheric testing. And just for for the you know for sake of completeness, if you like, lots of the anti nuclear movements that we know today often grew out of this specific period mm-hmm. and often in opposition to nuclear testing. So in Britain, um, the campaign for nuclear disarmament, nuclear weapons were not that controversial in Britain in the 40s and the 50s, even despite some of these incidents being wildly reported and that kind of thing. It was only when fears about radioactivity and atmospheric testing started to become really mainstream that you got a public opposition that started to organize itself against uh, the idea that perhaps nuclear weapons aren't that great and definitely should Britain or other countries have them. And eventually that coalesces and becomes uh, organized in formal institutions like CND. I think it's when nuclear anxieties become mainstream and become organized. Not every nuclear weapon movie has to be showing a mushroom cloud or be literally about the people who uh who survive an attack like there can be other ways to tell this story and to tell these concerns without having that explicit imagery there is a place for the day after and threads and there's a place for those to exist there's a place for dr strange love to exist and there's a place for these kind of b-movie films that express a moment in time an anxiety and tell this story a little bit differently which are exactly the kind of things that if you and I were to be in 1954, maybe we're uh, in a group of people at a drive-in theater, because I think those used to exist still in the 1950s, <laughs> and we're, we're in literally in a parking lot, and we roll our windows down, and we start to talk about this film. I think this would be a good point to get into uh, what we'd be talking about. Like, So but I guess kind of my first question here is, does this movie hold up today? Like, Do you think that this film would be something you could recommend to people that weren't interested in the nuclear side, like I, w- I was really struggling with that because at the beginning of the movie it was it was good. The middle yeah. definitely dragged, and by the end I didn't love it. But I I could recognize how important it must have been back then. Um, I think the pacing is definitely uneven. It's more uneven than I remembered. So I, I hadn't revisited this film probably about eight to ten years, and it's probably about the third time I've seen it. Okay. 
so I did enjoy it. I was entertained by it. I think it's helped by things like the um, having watched a couple of these films as well in, 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 in a quite short succession. It's helped by the scale of the production, the fact that it's not been shot in miniature with stop motion. There right. is something quite fun about watching these giant ants getting flamethrowered in the face. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty fun. Something, something's on fire, something burned. It is definitely unevenly paced. Um, I think it's actually is helped by the fact that it's also in black and white, and it get, probably can hide. I think it's called hiding the crimes in the in yeah. the in the trailer. It's um, you can't see the seams as, as much because it's black and white. Maybe if it was in color, it would look a bit more rupee. So supposedly it was supposed to be originally in color. It was going to be mm. one of the first Warner Brother movies uh, that was going to get the color treatment, and also it was supposed to be in 3D because now that 3D is so popular here in the states. Yeah. But uh, it's so it's coming back because it's more like a retro thing. There are a lot of these 3D yeah. movies with 3D glasses. This movie was supposed to be shot and was originally shot partially in 3D. You can yeah. actually still see some of the cameras, the 3D cameras. They just left them in as props for the for the film itself. But they ran out of budget or they cut the budget at the last minute. So they ended up being in black and white, except for the opening title of the movie yeah. is in color. And then beyond that, everything is in black and white. But I, yeah, this movie works better. If it was not in black and white, I don't think it would work as well. No. And I think when you com- when you compare it to the other films of the genre and of the time, I think it's second best behind only Godzilla. So, uh-huh. I, get, so I, get, I had not watched the original Godzilla properly. I'd probably seen most of it through clips. But as part of preparation for this and as comparison, I, watched, I did sit down and watch it a couple of days ago. And... It's genuinely excellent. I mean, yeah, it's really so good. It, it it does suffer from the thing of like, oh, it's all done in miniature, and you know, a tiny helicopter looks like a tiny helicopter, <laughs> no matter how far you stretch your brain. But that is a much more well, technically better shot, but also just contemplative, methodical. It knows what it's going to do. It it deals with larger themes and issues in a much more nuanced way than 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 them does. But having said that. Godzilla is obviously one of the most famous films of all time, so it's not the worst thing to say them is not as good as that, but yeah, I definitely I say of the genre, it probably comes in about second. I think you can watch it even if you're not interested in the nuclear stuff, but you're definitely going to get most out of it if you have some kind of interest in nuclear weapons or the culture of the 50s and where that anxiety came from. There's the one area, though, that I know we both find very problematic and difficult to watch and it, the film does not age well is is just in the issue of representation mm-hmm. so we touched upon this a few bits in the discussion but the sexism pervading this film it's it's not only bad it, i think it's bad for the standards of the time there are only about three female characters in the film uh, so they're portrayed so one of them is a scientist so you'd say oh that's positive uh, you know a woman is being portrayed in the 50s as a scientist as a person who's knowledgeable but the film kind of looks for every opportunity to like make fun of her or to put her on the other side of the other characters which is just grating and just seems really anachronistic mm-hmm. and another than that women are either depicted as victims and then the other woman in a speaking role in this film is this really weird scene where it's where the police are looking for they're, invest- they're investigating where might these ants be? Are there any strange reports? And they ha- they pull in a couple of people who have been arrested for public intoxication and one woman who was speeding. And so <laughs> they go to this woman and say, oh, what, you were arrested going 60 miles an hour. Why were you in such a hurry? Were you escaping from something? <laughs> and and the woman goes, um, no, I was visiting a sick friend. Well, uh, I won't tell you his name because he's married. And then they, they, she's in a room with six guys who look at each other, all exchange a look and go, oh, okay, you can leave. 
and it's this really weird i think it's meant to be comedic but it comes across purely as slut shaming and it is so weird that the film it it comes out of nowhere it doesn't need to be there the film goes out of its way to do this and yep. it just watching it it's just the film kept coming back to these moments um it was funny i was watching godzilla 11 minutes into godzilla there's a really weirdly sexist bit in that as well um but that was only like one moment in the whole film um, which you can kind of think, oh, well, it was the 50s and it's another culture that I don't know the sensitivities to. Maybe I can't judge as much. This film, however, it was just absolutely clanging. Uh, so it's the one bit I was like, you know, OK, maybe recommend them to people, but with a massive asterisk and saying, you know, it's a film from the 50s. I think you can see one person of color in the whole film in a montage. Mm-hmm. And he's like, well, that's probably not surprising given Hollywood in the 50s. But even by the standards of the time, I think this film is pretty damn sexist. Yeah, <laughs> and women that's are, stuck w- in my crawl a bit. Women are either inconsolable, criminal or incompetent. Is kind yeah. of how it's described. Beyond beyond that, which is a very unfortunate uh, in terms of wanting to just be able to introduce people to the film, I think it's you could still do it. You just have to tell people to caveat it uh, yeah. when when they're coming into it. But what what else do you think this movie? You know, we talked about all the different genres of atomic film uh, from that from that time period. Some were using radiation as a MacGuffin. Other ones were trying to yeah. tell a contemplative story. Because a lot of them, you see, there are fear of of, of nuclear attack and, and fear of radiation you know has the cold war gotten hot was one of the reporters asked mm. or there's also a sense of guilt and uh comeuppance that sometimes p- filmmakers want to introduce as a story yep. godzilla is here to destroy us because of what we've done with radiation and we should feel guilty about that particular side of it fortunately he's still attacking japan which sucks uh until the later films when he goes around the world. But then also super interesting how how Godzilla becomes also a hero. Well, for, well even for in Godzilla, humanity. I find... So obviously we're not meant to be on Godzilla's side because he is destroying cities and we see characters that we're meant to care about yeah. living in fear and that kind of thing. But at the same time, there's a scientist in Godzilla who, again, he's a zoologist and he has a daughter in the film and a weird parallel to them. Um, they're going around researching Godzilla. Hmm. And this scientist wants to um, save Godzilla because he wants he sees it as it was just a creature. And he's also learned how to live with radioactivity. And we should learn from hmm. that rather than killing it. And even when Godzilla, spoiler, dies in the film, or seems to die, it's presented in a really sad, somber moment. And you kind of feel for the monster in the film. And it's kind of, it is presented a sense of Godzilla has been, in this case, released. He's not caused by radiation, but he's released by atomic testing, has opened his cave kind of thing. Mm-hmm. He's been released because of mankind's folly, specifically in developing weapons of mass destruction. So yeah, th- on some extent, this is on us and this is our punishment. Uh, but at the same time, He's kind of presented as just, oh, it's just an animal. It's just doing what animals do. Mm-hmm. And does it necessarily deserve to die? In the same, it's funny how later from Godzilla becomes the hero and he's able to save us from the other monsters. And that's that's exactly the thing that I liked about certain Godzilla stories or stories about giant monsters yeah. in general is, and I think this is sometimes a deployed as a, a tool for nuclear discussion, is indifference. The bomb is yeah. indifferent to people. Mm. The bomb is a, is a thing, a, a creation, but like radioactive science and the science of fission and fusion and, and, and all of that, it's indifferent to people. It doesn't matter. It, it just, it's going to happen and it doesn't pick sides. It doesn't care if, yep. if you are a person or if you're a, a plant life or anything. And Godzilla's just general indifference in something that we can't fully understand, fully control is a similar way that people think about the bomb. The bomb is yeah. uh, something that 
uh, takes on a life of its own often because we as people put it onto onto it and it becomes yeah. an indifferent tool that can indiscriminately uniquely indiscriminately destroy humanity people buildings innocence people who are targets of attack all of those things and the monsters in them the monsters quote unquote the ants are largely just acting like ants they're just yeah. they're just being ants but they're given better uh tools they're larger they're doing all the things that they could would do if they were just larger you know if you if your cat yeah. If your cat became a 10-foot large cat, it would kill you <laughs> and eat you. Like, I'm, my cat is sitting sleepily right next to me. But if she was my size, I would – she wouldn't – she would just eat me. She wouldn't care. She'd be like, you don't give me enough wet food? I'm your wet food now. Uh, and I, I always think that's a fascinating a take on this because some of the best horror films and best science, science fiction thriller movies are that which seems – at one point we can understand and have some sense of control over it. But then you strip that away. And you don't have that ability to affect your environment and your your own story. You're no longer in control of your own story is a frightening thing for me. Uh, and I know that's kind of one of the things that affects a lot of other people is no longer being in control. And I think the the bomb, uh, the thing that concerns a lot of people is you don't know what, how do you, how do you deal with something like that as an individual? How do you have agency? And I think them does a really good job of that. Yeah, I think that's what lots of these films are tying into is a sense of mankind acting at the very limits of its ability to to control the consequences of its action and also to act with wisdom. And there's a sense in all these films of this could go either way. So these films are often explicitly at the the very last line of this film is this yeah. is the um, scientist saying, you know, if we don't if we don't act a bit more with a bit more wisdom, who knows what's going to happen in the future? It's it's quite explicitly saying uh, we need to, we need to be more thoughtful about this. So uh, I think you can definitely see these, some of these films as as advocacy. I think them is on the more ex well done end of the spectrum of this. Some of the these B, B films are much more clumsy and, and not looking to be as philosophical. They are just using radiation as the MacGuffin to get mm -hmm. to the giant thing, so we can just have a horror film. So let's talk about them. Uh, let's rate it because uh, we always like to to rate <laughs> our movies on a consistent scale of one to five. One being pretty bad and and. Uh, five being great but because we get super critical about the plot let's get super critical in our rating system uh, i ran the numbers here and let's do uh, one out of five sacks of sugar uh, <laughs> one sack is barely enough to feed a growing ant but five sacks of sugar can supply an entire colony uh, how many sacks of sugar would you give the movie them can we do halves? Sure, you can. Uh, you can. You which... can cut open a. You can. Yeah, you can <laughs> right. pour out a little bit of the sugar. <laughs> this has some sugar packets. Uh, in which case, <laughs> I'll, I think I'll go for three and a half. Oh, okay. Um, for me, it's so some of the the production behind the film, the sound design is particularly excellent. I think if if I if I, if I hadn't watched this film in like ten years, as soon as I heard the ants cry, mm -hmm. it was immediately familiar, and it's actually quite creepy. It is. And I think this, the scale of the ants and the way it's presented in some of the action sequences are very good. As a film, though, it does also drag, and I can't really forgive it, the sexism, even for the standards of the time. But I also rec I think I recognize it. it's a very influential film, I think, in the genre, and I kind of bump it up a bit for that. But, you know, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be the first one I reach to, maybe, if I want to watch a film from the period. Yeah, <laughs> so you're, you're good I'd... for your decade of watching. Yeah. You're, you're... Let's talk in uh, in twenty uh, twenty eight, and let's watch it again. Uh, I would give it a, I would give it a three. Kind of very okay. very similar. Um, I think the the last third of the movie just drags so yeah. much that you watch the first 
two thirds of it, you got it. And then you can kind of watch just the last five minutes of it. But um, that's not too bad. I mean, it's about average for, for a film. It would, it, particularly when you start to place in all the extra pieces of the culture and the, the context of it. Uh, and the special effects are fascinating too. Um, director Gordon Douglas uh, recalled during uh, editing, he asked uh, the editor, so how does it look? And the editor responded, fine. And then the director says, does it look, does it look honest? Does it look like a real giant ant? And the editor says, as honest as a 12 foot ant can look. <laughs> So that's not too bad. I mean, it okay. it is fun to to watch, and because of all the, if you watch it, and also then listen to the podcast and have a that piece of how it fits into nuclear history, I would certainly recommend that people do it. And also, if you're a fan of Marvel's Ant Man, ah. there's a there's a scene in this in in them where the scientist uh-huh. is explaining different types of ants and their functions. That is exactly the scene. Pretty I think much. unintentionally. Michael Douglas explaining what the different ants are and what how, how they're going to be used by Ant Man. <laughs> you can't help but watch it in the in this you know, post Marvel age in which we exist mm-hmm. and go, ah, oh, yeah, I can see that. That's that's very familiar, definitely. Yep, yeah, and I like the Ant Man series quite a lot. I haven't realized like that is totally true. Those scenes are <laughs> are nearly identical. Go watch Ant Man. And if you have other, <laughs> and if you have other things to recommend, uh, this is normally the part of the podcast where we do that. So I've got four quick things, and maybe you have some uh, two that aren't Marvel related. Uh, but first, uh, pick up a copy of The Fate of the Earth uh, by Jonathan Shelf. Uh, it's one of the the books I mentioned earlier. You can get some of the articles online if you have a New Yorker subscription. I do not, so that book is out there, and it's really f- there. There are definitely other things he's written that are online that you don't have to pay for. Uh, so I would check out some of his writing on, on nuclear history. I would also recommend another book called Atomic Age Cinema, the offbeat, the classics, and the obscure from 2018 is a recent print from Barry Atkinson. It's a it's written from a fan of Atomic Age Cinema, and it's mostly just goes through and the history, and it's not really a lot about atomic things, uh, but it is fun for people who like this genre. Have you heard of this book before? No, I don't think I have. I'm going to mail it to you. Oh, I missed. Uh, it's a, I, I've read it. I'm over. I, I got everything it needs out of it. But <laughs> as a fan of the genre, I would love it if you... I'll, I'll send that to you uh, okay. after the podcast. Uh, the next thing is a book that I mentioned earlier uh, by Spencer Wehrt, W-E-H-R-T. I don't think that's how you pronounce his last name. But he wrote a book called The Rise of Nuclear Fear from 2012. It is a book I should have mentioned on the podcast before because I read it a couple times and it's really terrific for uh, tracing nuclear history from the dawn of the atomic age through Fukushima. And a big piece of it is is about the development of pop culture. And it's one that I've, I've certainly have thought about a lot when I do podcasts like this. So I'll, I'll, I'll for- formally introduce it here as something people should be reading. Finally, I'll link to the article I mentioned earlier about the colony of, of doomed ants. <laughs> In Poland. Uh, That's going to keep me up at night, that one. <laughs> it's pretty crazy. The, the article is from 2016. It's called Ants Trapped in Nuclear Bunker Are Developing Their Own Society. So check that out. Tim, what do you got for us? <laughs> uh, okay, well, for me, just a couple of, of small things. Um, so one is a book. I th- I can't remember if I recommended this before. I've definitely mentioned it before. I swear, so I'm a graduate student. I swear I have read other books. But I just keep returning. <laughs> the fact I keep returning to this one is just because I think it's so well written. So it's it's by a historian called Gerard de Groot. And it's called, um, depending on if you're in Britain or the US, it's either called The Bomb, A Life, or The Bomb, A History of Hell on Earth. Uh, I think it's marketed differently in, in, in different markets. It's quite short, um, but it's basically like a, 
a skip through the whole history of the development of nuclear weapons, but uh, the writer has a particular interest in not just the big history and the big figures, but also society and culture. So, and it's also just one of the best written, like um, narratively most satisfying books. So, I would, I think, I would strongly recommend. It's always find a place on on my shelf. You studied uh, with this person, right? Yeah, I did. I did. So, uh, but you know, a long time ago, and I'm not. I'm promised I'm not getting a cut of any like increased modest sales or whatever. <laughs> um, but again, it, um, there's one of the certain classes you take when you're an undergrad have a really big influence on you. Yep. And I think I think any class on nuclear weapons should include looking at society and culture, not just strategy and science, um, because these are uh, living relevant issues, but also they change significantly from generation to generation. Um, so I think that's why one reasons them is so interesting. Mm-hmm. The other end of the um, academic spectrum, because so, because so much of the background to these films is thermonuclear weapons. I think just Richard Rhodes' book, Dark Sun, on the making of the hydrogen bomb. If uh, terrific, it's, terrific it's intimidating book. by just the size of it. It is a massive piece of scholarship. As an academic, I think the development of hydrogen bombs are as important as the development of atomic bombs. But Richard Rowe's book on just how that that innovation came about, I think, is is genuinely fascinating, even if it is a, a little bit drier. <laughs> but, but it's 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 worth. And and the final thing, just because I had never watched it in its entirety, but I think the the original Godzilla film, so okay. something you can actually just watch rather than read. I just it's I, I don't particularly want to compare the two because maybe it's not fair but i think it is a better film than them but i say still enjoy them solid three and a half film not bad but um i think uh if you want more philosophical treatment of nuclear weapons and monsters um it is worth seeking out godzilla i'm glad i did it and actually watched watched the real thing and it also i think almost erased the memory of matthew broderick from from my memory (laughs) have you seen any of the new ones uh i guess the maybe just the first one the x one's coming out next year I quite enjoyed it. It was yeah. a little bit uneven, but I enjoyed it. It just starts with a clanging mistake where it says, <laughs> you know, we, we, we see the Castle Bravo shot. And I think they say later, are like, oh, no, but our weapons are bigger than that now. And like, no, they're not. That yeah. was the biggest weapon you ever had. <laughs> That's the opposite of what you just said. And it's the first five minutes of the film. I'm like, oh, it better get better than this. <laughs> so we just did a podcast episode on uh, asteroids versus nukes. Yep. And the very first scene, the first words said by, I think, Charleston Heston in Armageddon, when you see an image of the meteor that killed the dinosaurs, it's like, it exploded with the force of 10,000 nuclear bombs. <laughs> and you're like, no, it exploded with the force of like 2 billion nuclear bombs. <laughs> it destroyed everything. You're of magnitude. I mean, that's impressive. <laughs> yeah. Like, all right, very cool. Um well, Tim, thanks so much again for coming on the podcast. I think I told people it was going to be a short episode. We've been recording for about two and a half hours. I'll edit this down uh, so that it's a little bit easier because a 90-minute movie, people. we definitely went longer than the movie itself, but that's okay. That's what we do. Ask we get super critical. Ask a simple question, then you'll get a <laughs> rambling answer. Well, I always appreciate uh, you coming on the on the show and to talk about this. We should do this more than just once a year um, when new things come up. We'll talk about Battlestar Galactica at some point. We'll talk about yes. uh, Last Man on Earth. We'll talk about all these things over and over Brilliant. again. Oh, brilliant. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Super Critical Podcast. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, hey, you want to tell us what we got wrong, uh, ant-wise or nuke-wise, uh, a couple ways you can contact the show. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash supercriticalpodcast. We're also on Twitter 
at Nuclear Podcast and email the old-fashioned way, supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed the show, you can either go on iTunes or wherever you listen and give us a five-star review, tell us what we should be covering, or if you don't like to leave a public record for your strong interest in nuke pop culture, just tell a friend uh, about the podcast. Tell them why you should listen and why it's this kind of crazy show where people talk for three hours about a movie from the 50s, uh, about atomic ants. They might like it too. So until next time, this has been Tim Westmeyer. And I'm Tim Collins. And remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive, we are bound to get super critical about it. Have a good one.